Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Double Reel, the podcast for the discerning film nerd. It's December 2022, Christmas is around the corner, and you're probably all locked in a family argument about which retailer has the best seasonal mascot and whether Die Hard is the best Christmas film. We're here with a generous helping of content for your waiting ears while you wrap those final presents and try to defrost the turkey. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for the introduction. We aim to provide an old-school film-goer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at DoubleReelFilm. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash doublereal, where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Here's what's coming up in episode 32. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, how we're doing on our film-related resolutions for 2022, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and watch a great film instead. For this episode, we look at the Oscar-winning Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known or underappreciated film that deserves a wider audience, which this month features Jake Gyllenhaal in the dark and disturbing drama Nightcrawler. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale, a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 32, we explore the surprising story that Martin Scorsese almost directed the Joker film. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we discuss the most recent failed attempt to make the Fantastic Four. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 32, we'll look at how the Lord of the Rings franchise developed from the original trilogy, through The Hobbit, to the Rings of Power TV series. But first, some messages from the listeners, a.k.a. the podcast magazine letters page. Tony Friend of the Pod says, Watch Wakanda forever and agreed with your overview. Could easily have cut 20 minutes out of it, but enjoyed it otherwise. What do you two think of 4D screenings? I found it an interesting experience, but quite distracting. Obviously works for MCU-type blockbusters, but not sure it would work for Schindler's List. Um, I don't know what you think of 4D screenings, mate. I don't think I've ever. Is that the one where it pure jiggles you about? Yeah, and if and if it's a, if it's like set at sea, they throw water at you and stuff like that. I've never been to one. Yeah, yeah. For me, it kind of plays a little bit into Scorsese's comment that cinema's turning into an amusement park rather than uh, than than film. But uh, yeah, to be honest, there's a lot of things that are suitable for MCU type blockbusters, but not for Schindler's List. You know what I mean? Some things have to be treated more soberly than others. I mean, imagine yeah. imagine a blooper reel over the credits of Schindler's List. <laughs> On our big conversation about what happened to the Lord of the Rings franchise, Anne says, Original trilogy, great. Hobbit, meh. Rings of Power, unfairly hated and awesome, in my opinion. Vincent says, Original trilogy still looks and is told exceptionally well. The moments uh, the, the moments that hit hard first time still do, even after nearly two decades later. The Hobbit trilogy and now soap opera garbage of the TV series, not so much. Sahab says, I really like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I saw the extended versions, haven't gone back since. Saw two-thirds of the Hobbit trilogy, obviously didn't click with since I didn't even bother with the third one. Um, really like, almost love The Rings of Power. The show kept getting better as the season went on and the visuals were absolutely stunning. The first season was very much a setup season and expecting big things from the show. On the whole, from the, the comments 
the the series and the, the TV series and the Hobbit are getting a mixed reception, let's say. But there are some defenders of the Rings of Power. On our classic Birdman, Justin said, the acting by everyone involved was incredible, but it wasn't my favourite movie of the year. I thought Whiplash was better. Scott agrees. On a one that got away, Scorsese's Joker. Joe says, uh, a Scorsese version would be awesome, no doubt. I love the Joker movie as it is, and I can't imagine it any other way, though. Lauren says, if I imagine a Scorsese Joker, I honestly imagine it pretty much the way Todd Phillips did it, because it was such a Scorsese-influenced style. Hard to say exactly, though, because Scorsese wouldn't have done a rehash of his own 70s and 80s films if he'd done it. Davy says, I enjoy comic book films, but I'm also glad there are many great directors who refuse to do them, so I'm glad Scorsese didn't do this. I feel like so many people have done a franchise film, and I, don't, I know that's where the money is today, but it's nice to see people like Tarantino, Scorsese, Paul Thomas Anderson, and others staying away and continuing to do their own original work. On our Kubrick entry, Eyes Wide Shut, Bobby says, I think he's revealing secrets we're not really meant to completely understand, like the elite sex parties and the scene where the man casually hands his daughter over to those creepy old guys. On our hidden gem Nightcrawler, Tracy says good movie but really messed up. Ben says absolutely class film. There's an interview with Jake Gillen all about how he developed the character, which is a really good watch. Paul agrees and says Jake should have won the Oscar for best actor. On our remake Hey Watch, the 2015 version of Fantastic Four, Charlie says the first 30 to 40 minutes of this were actually quite strong. It just fell apart as soon as the characters got their powers. Garza says still the worst comic book adaptation I've ever seen, full stop. Like Batman and Robin, Catwoman and X-Men Origins were terrible, but at least they felt like comic book movies. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the pod. Now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set ourselves for 2022. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention our other podcasts which you might like to check out, The Adamson's Versus is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that's caught our attention. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Versus the Government, is out now, and we are looking to get a new one out to you as soon as we can. With that piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's get into this month's episode. So, the the last couple of these that we've done uh, had sort of a fairly overt theme. We did a sci-fi one, we did a conspiracy one. I, th- I think sometimes it's quite fun for there to be like a, a unifying theme for the features that we do. There isn't exactly the same... Uh, 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 theme this time, but mainly what I chose was I, I chose all the films uh, features that this for this episode, uh, and I t- selected films that were released in the UK anyway um, during the year in which you turned eighteen, mate. So from you know from the day of your birthday to you know the the day before your nineteenth birthday that year. So you were eighteen when all these films came out, and Ooh, yes. I thought that'd just be interesting because like you know it sort of sounds a bit pompous to say coming of age. I think that the key the key thing is when you turn eighteen and you're you know you, you become an adult, you, you you become I guess one of the people you would say this was your era for film. For me, the early nineties was you know began to be my era of film. You know the eighties I grew up I was a child of the eighties and loved all those eighties films but I was an adult in the 90s and all the films and Tarantino and Paul Thomas Anderson all those films came out you know when I was that age and I thought well what was the film world doing when you turned 18 um I think I, if you want to even dilute it further than that is that that's the, the age where you can watch any film without yes adult yes, exactly. supervision you can go to the cinema whenever you want like yeah. and watch whatever film you want 
Yeah, and it these is, and these are the these are the films that were available to you when that happened, right? Yeah, or among them anyway. It's funny. I mean, I, I just just for fun, I thought if we were going to do one, I'm not gonna, I'm not proposing we discuss these. I just thought it'd be interesting if I was going to do one for the year I turned eighteen. What would that set of films look like? And you could have a classic of Raised the Red Lantern, the Chinese film, A Hidden Gem, uh, The Hard Way, the Michael J. Fox, uh, James Woods film. Um, one that got away always requires a bit more research about what films are being made around about that time. And we sort of did um, Nostromo already, which would have come out around about that time. You could do a remake, Hate Watch, Your Father of the Bride. You could you could do a redo maybe of Hook or Backdraft for films that could have been better if they'd been done right. But uh, for, for this, we're, you know, we're doing a series of films that came out when you were 18. And I think it's interesting to kind of take the temperature of you know, what cinema was doing, you know, like you say, when you could go and see any film. It also meant that, that there's nothing that, that's maybe old and dated. Do you know what I mean? They're all films that were kind of, you know, new and fresh when you watch them, yeah? Um, but apart from that, let's, the first thing we normally talk about when we when we do our roundup is is the news. So has any news caught your eye this month, mate? Uh, well, just this morning, Harvey Weinstein's in trouble again. Yeah. Um he's already sentenced to twenty four years and he faces another twenty three. Yeah. Um I don't know if he's found guilty again, but he's on trial for it and faces another twenty three. And I don't know if those sentences would run concurrently to ensure the man um never uh, not concurrently, sorry, one after the other as opposed yeah. to concurrently, so yeah. that the man never sees the light of day again. But he seems like he's gonna die anyway. Yeah. I just want to put it out there that Harvey Weinstein has like a mouldy cock and it causes him extreme agony. And I'm I I don't think karma has ne- has ever been more apt <laughs> because the guy deserves it like more yeah. than a prison sentence he deserves that more than anything. Yeah, it's um, gonna, it's going to come up in a bit more detail later. But the, one of the films that came out recently, she said, is about the investigative journalists that uh, uh, broke the Harvey Weinstein case. And despite being quite a good film, it's not done that well at the box office. And Harvey Weinstein, through his legal team, released a press release in reaction to that, gloating about the box office failure of the film, saying that Harvey Weinstein at least knew, you know, that the audience wants to be entertained, and you know, and it's like, fuck uh, you, man. That's what just, are you talking about? You know, it's like these are two Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists who put you in prison, mate. This is not the time for you to gloat, you fucking piece of shit. He obviously went to the Kevin Spacey school of retorting. Um, yeah, he's a sexual misconduct claims. Have you seen the Kevin Spacey one? No, tell me. So after the whole Kevin Spacey's a creep thing, yeah, he, um, I remember he kind of came out and said, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry," and then something happened where like one of the cases was dropped, yeah. and he released a video as his character Frank Underwood from House of Cards oh, carving a yeah, turkey, right? Yeah, and it's like you wouldn't believe the truth just because they said it was the truth. <sighs> He's like, "You and me, we got to stick together," and you're like, "Huh." He's yeah. He's barbaric. He's a horrible little man. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I would prefer Kevin Spacey to actually see, you know, justice for what he did. And I know there are court cases that he's facing, but the fact that he's, you know, knocking around inside his his house, you know, going going mad enough to to do shit like that is is at least something. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he's not got quite got like a prison sentence or a gangrenous cock yet. Yeah, but there's still time. Yeah. Um, in terms of actual film news, Avatar's come out. Yeah. Avatar 2, The um, the Way of the Water. Yeah. Which is a really fucking shit title for a film. Um, I mean, you've had 13 years and 15 different writers, and that's the title you came up with, but, you know. Um, 
I've seen mixed reviews towards it. I've not seen it. I've not had the time to go to the cinema. No, too... me either. It came out. It came out over the weekend. I've not had a chance to go and see it yet. I'm too busy and too ill. If you can't tell by the sound of my um, influenza-laden dulcet tones, that I am not in the mood to be going to see James Cameron's Dances with Smurfs to Smurf Harder. Yeah. Um, but it's getting mixed reviews. Some people absolutely love it. It's better than the first one, and then other people are just like, I can't believe there were four screenwriters on this film, and it's it's. It's dog shit. So I'll have to, it's one of those ones where I can't kind of go with the general consensus. I'll just have to I'll have, see. I'll have to watch it myself and I can't be fucked with it because it'll be about six hours long. Yeah, I mean, again, I was I was looking at timings to go and see it and it was like, it's the weekend before Christmas. Just, you know. Fuck that. It's like, can, can I get away for like three hours plus trailers plus travel there and back right now? No, I can't. At some point, I I do want to see it, and I do want to see it on the biggest screen possible because James Cameron always makes things visually impressive. He's pretty good at filming stuff underwater as well. So let's see. Um, it's doing all right at the box office. Worldwide total of uh, $434 million as of December the 18th. When did um, it come out? December the 16th. Jesus fucking Christ. So it's That's fucking absurd. It's doing quite well. It's, Fuck off. The thing about James Cameron is that I, I, I mean, the first Avatar film, I enjoyed it when I watched it, and I, I and I, I've got it on Blu-ray. I don't feel an urge to go back and watch it all that often. I remember at the time thinking this is good, to, good to watch, and you know, was enjoyable to watch, but nothing, nothing groundbreaking in the story. It was pretty basic, um, and. I'm sure this one's going to be, you know, but but it, but it did make like $2 billion because James Cameron does have a knack of making stories that lots of people watch. So I'm sure it's going to do quite well at the box office. We'll see. Um, I got some news. Um, Bob Iger has returned as the CEO of Disney just a year after retiring. Um, did you not retire because he was a beast? No. Or am I making that up? Why did he retire then? He just retired because he'd been in the job about 10 years, decided it was time to hand over to someone else. Oh, sorry, Bob Iger. <laughs> I wonder if perhaps he retired because it was he'd done Endgame, he'd done everything else on Disney and Star Wars and everything else. I think he'd maybe decided that it, it was time to give the reins to somebody else because he, he, he saw that things were about to go downhill because they've gone downhill. But his successor has kind of taken the hit for... Um, you know, job losses, cost cuts, recent films not doing as well or being as well received as previously. Um, Bob Iger's back. I mean, if you ask me some of the things that went wrong with Disney, like, you know, streaming, uh, the the way in which they did the Star Wars uh, series and everything else happened on his watch. So I'm not sure he's the saviour, but he's been brought back to steady the ship at Disney because all's I'm, not I'm wrong. not being funny, right? He didn't direct it. He didn't give the fucking, like cast notes after like recordings and scenes and stuff like that like that i think that's fucking nonsense like and he left a year ago black widow was out before that and it was shit and yeah yeah i i yeah i mean Thor love and thunder came out this year but it was probably commissioned under this cunt's watch i hate shit like that but it's like when the manager gets the fucking flack in football because the players aren't playing well so he didn't like he didn't he had fuck all responsibility to like like to deal with that kind of thing. Yeah, I think I, Iger is responsible for a lot of the strategy that's in place for Disney that we've been highly critical of. So I'm not sure exactly what kind of benefit comes from him coming back. So we'll see. Um, I, I think there's, you know, all's not well with Disney. I think they've killed the golden goose with Star Wars. They seem to be killing Marvel, although Wakanda Forever's done well. Um, 
We'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, Wakanda Forever's only done well because of the first one and because Chadwick Boseman passed away. And everyone wants to, f- um, and it sounds horrible, but everyone wants to know what happens to Black Panther. Basically, yeah, that's the only reason that film's done well. Like, yeah, and it's and and I think the reason it's been good is that people, the people involved, were found you know put too much priority on doing a good film, which sounds odd, but the other films have just been like chuck you know chucked out without any thought. And I think with Wakanda Forever, they actually made some effort, and it felt like more of an event. Or some of the other like Marvel films that have come out since um, Endgame have just felt like oh another Marvel film righty ho you know just not as much of a an exciting event you know uh, and I think the part of the reason none of these things seem like exciting event is is Disney's just throwing out film after film and series after series and it's, there's no um, hoping for the best yeah yeah so we'll see um, other news not so much news but I saw a trailer for the uh, film that's coming up next year called Babylon I don't know if you've heard about this film nope. It's uh, it's directed by Damien Chazelle, responsible for things like Whiplash and La La Land. Oh, um, very good. It's set in the early days of Hollywood, although it's a very fictionalized story. I don't think there's maybe one or two. Oh, there's that, maybe why is one this ringing two, a bell? There's maybe one or two real characters, but it's mainly completely fictional, but based on the way things were in, in, in the wild early days of Hollywood. Um, Margot Robbie's in it, Brad Pitt. Um, and it looks fucking amazing. I've got to tell you, it looks absolutely incredible. I have to say, I haven't watched a lot of Damien Chazelle films because the actual subject matter of his films didn't entirely grab me. So I'm sure he's very talented, but the, do you know, sometimes you say, oh, that's probably good, but it's not my thing. Whereas this, I saw the trailer and went, this is so up my street. I want to fucking watch this. Uh, it's about yeah. like the wild, crazy times of early Hollywood and the different characters and almost like the, you know, almost like the, the decadent early days of Hollywood. I so want to see so it. So like it looks, back in the 30s or 20s and 30s? Si- that far si- back? Silent era. So like in early, the early, 20, early 20s and, and 10s and early 20s. And it looks absolutely incredible. It looks incredible. I'm so, I'm so going His to see that as soon as it comes look, out. Apart from Whiplash, because Whiplash was much more about the performance. But yeah. that first man was a really fucking boring film, but the visuals were really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and La La Land's very unique in the way it was shot and filmed. Yeah, yeah. He's very. Um, he films his films very well. Yeah, um, I mean, he's, the, and he's like what fourteen. He's a very young guy, but th- this, th- yeah, this film looks like it's a really kind of, you know, absolute. You know, if Baz Luhrmann wasn't a self indulgent, self indulgent pillock, these are the films that he would make. Uh, I really don't like Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but anyway, um, so that's that. I just totally want to see Babylon. Um, Tony, friend of the pod, also drew my attention to a trailer for the Cocaine Bear. I mean, we briefly yes. we briefly mentioned this when we did the Cocaine Bear yes. podcast on um, the Adamsons versus that they were talking about doing a film that's coming out. There's a trailer that film's coming out. I think it's one of Ray Liotta's last films before he before he um, before he passed away. Um, I think we said when we when we did that for the podcast that the, the risk on that is is there enough for a story. Enough story for a film, but we'll see. They're definitely, it's, it's coming out. Trailer's been made. It's been shot. It's coming. So that's that. Fantastic. Any any other news that's caught your eye? Um, did anyone die? I didn't see anything. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, I did see this stuff to do with Henry Cavill and DC. Did you see that? Yes. Yeah. So Henry Cavill's really been in the news the past couple of weeks. So I remember he basically said that he's doing the third season of The Witcher and then he's fucking off and. That really shows how bad Netflix have become as kind of like showrunners. Mm. I know it's I know it's a TV series, but it's, it's, they also make films as well, and they've pissed a lot of people off. But basically, Henry Cavill is an uber nerd. He built his own custom PC and you know played The Witcher three on it for you know two hundred hours. So yeah. he's like The Witcher is his baby, and you know how bad a showrunner you have to be to make Henry Cavill 
want to leave his baby. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, how bad, it'd be like Disney being that bad that Ryan Reynolds gives up Deadpool. Yeah. That's kind of the yeah. similar. So I know it's a TV show, so I didn't, you know, didn't think I would mention it on the pod, but then like you say, the whole DC stuff. So what happened was he was asked to come back in October to reprise his role as Superman. They're going to try and refresh the kind of DC universe. Yeah. And they I don't think Henry Cavill's actually been a bad Superman. He's just been in he's been directed by shit. Yeah. Directors. So Zack Snyder was, you know, useless and I don't think who else has been direct and Joss Whedon's obviously a fucking plum. Um and yeah. I thought, okay, James Gunn did a really good job with that Suicide Squad film, so you know Maybe he could liven up Superman, right? Yeah. And Henry Cavill coming back, I didn't actually have a problem with. And this was back in October. And then in the past few days, James Gunn and another guy, Peter something. Yeah, they've taken over DC. and But they, they wanted him to come back because they, they, they were the ones, I think, that called him back in October. And then they've just kind of changed their minds and said, yeah, no. Well, Henry Cavill's uh, sort of tweet, PR, I mean, it's a tweet, but nowadays like actors will actually put official press releases out on their Twitter feed. He said that, and it, it's, he sounded a bit pissed off, I've got to be honest, although he was doing his best to kind of... You know when people try are trying not to sound pissed off, but clearly they are? Um, that's what he sounded like on his tweet, when he basically said, after having been told to announce I was returning as Superman, I now have to give you the news that I'm not going to be returning as Superman. So he's kind of... He was told, you're back as Superman, tell everyone you're back as Superman. And people, one of the things people assumed was he's left The Witcher so he can concentrate on being a central part of the DC, you know, new round of DC films. So for him to be dropped now is like, oh, what, what's all this about? I suppose that's an assumption, but I do think it's because Netflix are fucking about with The Witcher. Yeah. Like, I, I was pissed off with The Witcher because the first season was kind of slow, but establishing stuff, and I thought the second season was much of the same. Yeah, they haven't got it, got it, got and it going. Obviously, it's a massive, you know, I don't think people realise how big this universe is for The Witcher. Um, but I think I think that's an assumption to assume you, that he's you, given you, up that. Yeah. He wouldn't give up that for Superman. Yeah. But do you know what's annoyed more than anything is that if you want someone else to be Superman, then that's fine, and that's great in that. But it just it's going to put people in a bad mood before they see the next Superman because it's been badly handled. And right? it's like DC just can't they just can't catch a break. If they hadn't told him, and they just said right, Henry, we're going to get someone else to be Superman. Thank you very much. And then they text text the next fucking massive guy to get even bigger and become Superman and they've done it correctly but they've just kind of fucked everyone about they fucked Henry Cavill about and now people are like oh well what the fuck do you guys actually do like when you sit there and you have meetings about meetings and discussions about discussions in the boardroom what the fuck do you actually do because it doesn't know it looks like they don't know what the fuck they're playing at that's exactly what I was thinking it's that it's not so much the decision not to carry on with Henry Cavill as Superman it's the fact that one minute they do want him the next minute they don't it doesn't seem like the people in charge know what they're doing and James Gunn is involved this time and while James Gunn I think did a really good job of Suicide Squad and I can see the sense of saying well actually James Gunn if you understand what you want to do with DC and you have a plan go for it but it seems like same old DC they just don't seem to know what they're doing he's already said he's been inundated with crap from the angry militant wing of online DC fans which is it is what it is I mean he'll ne- they'll never forgive him for not being Zack Snyder even though Zack Snyder is clearly not the way to go um, it's just yeah. it's almost it almost feels like it's all the more impressive, actually, that the new Batman film, Matt Reeves and Robert Pattinson, is is good. 
because it's not like they're doing they're making good films in an environment that's conducive to that. Do you know what I mean? They started well with Wonder Woman, but then they fucked up the sequel. They've completely gone off the boil. They you know with the the Justice League and and so on. And you just think God they and Black Adam. While I think it's done okay at the box office, it's not got good reviews. They just seem to be unable to get them get themselves going properly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and it it just yeah I don't know it just it looks like it's another calamity from yeah from DC. It's just they've dropped another clanger. Warner Brothers have probably got to take some responsibility as well because they are fucking hopeless. Yes, they are. Um, but yeah, it just it just looks it just looks like a big garbled mess. And I don't and I that's don't and that's before you even to... mention them kind of canning the Batgirl movie. Do you know what I mean? After spending ninety million pounds, mate, ninety million dollars yeah. making it, it's just insane what they're doing. Um, but I think the problem is is that they're they're now going to try and incorporate Matt Reeves as Batman into this new DCU, and I just I think they're only doing that because this Batman film was successful. Yeah, they're pro- they they're going to use it to prop everything but else up. What was successful about that Batman film is that he wasn't really. He wasn't really flying about with all of his gadgets. He was almost solely a detective in this film. Mm. He had his Batmobile and that, but he wasn't like, you know, he didn't even have half the gadgets that was in The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight's meant to be a kind of more realistic take. Yeah, on, yeah, yeah. Certainly The Dark Knight Rises was much more stripped down, wasn't it? And yeah. and this was even more so, much more street level. And I don't know, how are you going to incorporate that when, you know, in James Gunn's Suicide Squad, there was a giant starfish yeah. that spat out little, you know, little thing, other starfish that latched onto your face. You know, I think James Gunn's very much taking it down the kind of more DC kind of cartoonish route, like what was in the comics. Like what's yeah. what's in like the Batman video games in the comics is very different to like the Batman that we're used to now. Yeah. And I don't know how that would work with, you know, Robert Pattinson going from this guy who was just a detective to now having all these, you know, he's going to make a kryptonite suit and he's going to fight Superman, you know, that kind of vibe. I don't mm. think that's going to work. No. And I think they've only said that because... They're doing it because Batman is the only thing they're doing that's working. That's why. Yeah, and they're going to try and incorporate um, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker. They're just basically franchising these good standalone films. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I know does, there's going to be a sequel. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, the, the, the Joker sequels is going to be a musical or something, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I cannot be fucked with yeah, that. Yeah, I think that... They they never they, they even when they get it right they don't get it right for long do they? <laughs> so yeah. there you go that's DC for you. Any other news caught your eye? Um, the whale has been getting loads of rave reviews. Yeah. Um, you know the Brendan Fraser film, the yeah. sort of like comeback where he's a uh, he plays a professor or a teacher who's about six hundred pounds and he's trying to reconnect with his uh, his young daughter. Have you not seen it? Have you not seen anything about this? I have heard about it. He's they're talking about his like basically weight gain to play the part and and stuff like that. Wait, I don't think he hit six hundred pounds. There's a lot of prosthesis involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd obviously put on a lot of weight, you know, in his kind of hiatus from Hollywood. Yes, um, but he's he's not six hundred pounds. But he, um, it's got Sadie Sink from Stranger Things. Yeah, um, who plays Max and she plays his daughter, and it looks it looks genuinely. I've never seen a performance like this because Brendan Fraser's typically been. Goofy George of the Jungle type, or you know the kind of mummy, which doesn't really ask for a lot of acting, does it? Um, yeah. Yeah, he's a good, he's a good character. Um, he's, I think, well, he certainly was a good leading man, Brendan Fraser, and I've seen him be good in stuff. Um, yeah, this has been getting what you know rave reviews and a bit of awards, uh, awards buzz, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I've not seen it. I'd have, I don't think I'm going to go to the cinema to see it. But no, it sounds like something. It. it sounds like something you can catch right, yeah. at home, maybe. Okay, um, so I think that's I think that's the news. The other thing we tend to discuss for um, 
uh, for our roundup are the new films that are coming out. And we always do this for new films coming out uh, after the date uh, or you know, on or after the date that we release uh, the episode. So it'll be the 25th of the month through to about the 24th of the following month is what we generally do. And the films that are coming out in that time period, as a, as a quick one to mention, obviously we mentioned Avatar Way of Water is out already. We haven't had a chance to see it, see it yet, but we will. Hopefully I'll get a chance to watch it and we can discuss it in the next um, episode. Uh, the new Knives Out film, Glass Onion, already had like a brief cinema um, release, but now it's going to be widely available on Netflix from Christmas Eve onwards. Um, so that that's out on, on Netflix anyway, not the cinema. In terms of cinema releases, uh, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody is out on December the 26th. Um, that looks like it's gone very much down the traditional kind of music biopic route. Um, you know, for everything from, you know, Walk the Line to... Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody to, to various other things, the Rocket Man. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, December the thirtieth, uh, Corsage, which is a biographical film. Uh, it says here, uh, fictional account of Empress Elizabeth of Austria. Apparently, it's supposed to be a bit of a, a punky um, uh, sort of alternative view of a historical figure. Fr- frankly, I've not heard of. Um, also on January the sixth, uh, sort of start next year, a man called Otto comes out with Tom Hanks. That appears to be a uh, him sort of a... I think this is a remake of A Man Called Ovi, actually, looking at it. It looks very reminiscent of A Man Called Ovi, so I think that's what that is. Yes, it is. It's a remake of A Man Called Ovi with Tom Hanks. I didn't know that was even coming out. Uh, Till is coming out on January the 6th, which is... Um, uh, it, it's set in the 50s era... Uh, about a lynching and his mother vowing to expose the racism again that's a drama based on real events i imagine that'll be pretty powerful and depressing stuff Mm -hmm. um often um but i guess it's time these stories got told properly uh january the 9th empire of light is coming out that's getting a lot of buzz that's a new sam mendes film with olivia coleman uh michael ward it's uh set in an english coastal town in the 1980s trying to preserve an old cinema um I guess with Sam Mendes, I mean, obviously he's done some films that we really like. Um, so, you know, it's opportunity. It, c- it could be really good. You just never know. There's a film called, uh, well, it, it, it's it's written M3GAN, but it's called, it's Megan. This is maybe the third film in the Megan series, or it's just, yeah, it's a lifelike doll that takes on a life of its own, which appears to be um, uh, just a ripoff of Chucky, if you ask me. Uh. Uh, there's a film called Tar. I'm going to be pronouncing that because there's some sort of umlaut or something. Oh, it's a woman, biographical film of a woman called Lydia Tar, widely considered one of the greatest living composer conductors, with starring Kate Blanchett as her. So, um, oh yes, why does that ring a bell? Kate no, Blanchett. I saw, I saw a headline for that. Sorry, and it was um, accused of sexual misconduct. What the the guy? What Todd Field? No, so I think Kate Blanchett is playing a conductor that's accused. Obsession with sexual oh, misconduct. I see. Oh, I don't I know think. that. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that's... Uh, I think it's... Yeah, it's a... If I'm not mistaken, it's a female conductor accused of sexual misconduct, which is a very interesting Yeah, I don't, I don't know, if the, don't film, I don't know if the film is going to address that or whether that controversy is causing problems for the film. That's worth looking into. Um, and it, on January the 20th, Babylon comes out, which, which we discussed. That's Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, Olivia Wilde in Damien Chazelle's new film set in the early early days of Hollywood. And a film called True Haunting, a horror movie. Um, a terrifying story of the first televised exorcism on NBC in 1971. The new segment was a success. 
the exorcism was not in, in okay um true life supposedly true life exorcism stories are not my thing but that's out um so yeah few things there i imagine that up to babylon on january the 20th all of those films are going to be in contention for the oscars even though they're out in 2023 right okay because yeah. that's, that's the way it often works it's, the, it's getting up for that kind of season isn't it yeah i mean it looks to me like um that till is probably going to be an awards contention because of the subject matter empire of light sam mendez has got some awards buzz and look at the cast olivia coleman colin firth toby jones that Kate Blanchett one, who knows? And Babylon, Babylon's definitely going to be um, in contention for the Oscars, I think, because Damien Chazelle is an awards favourite. So we'll see what happens to that. Well, um, also Dan Aronofsky releasing the wheel. Dan Aronofsky only releases films to try and win Oscars. Yeah, that's right. Whether they're good or not is another yeah. question. But... Yeah, yeah. So what we tend to do, or what we started doing uh, this year with the first inaugural uh, Double Reel Awards, I'm going to suggest that we do the Double Reel Awards as our January big conversation, but those will be for films strictly released and which we watched uh, in the calendar year of 2022. So yes. those films that came out in 2023 won't be in contention. They'll have to wait till next year. <laughs> so, yeah, those are the new releases coming out. Um, one or two things that I'm definitely going to try and see. Um, but after that, we always talk about the films that we have watched uh, recently, sort of new films or any anything notable that we watched uh, recently. Is it, did you watch any new films or newish films lately, mate? I watched... No. I wouldn't say this is a good film. But I watched Shooter. Oh, because I recommended that you watch that, the um, the Mark Wahlberg thing, yeah? Yeah, it's shit. Oh, did you not um, like it? Oh, I'm no, sorry, mate. No, no, it's not your fault. I just can't stand Mark Wahlberg. I think he's a fucking Bible-bashing, racist, asshole piece of shit. I just can't stand the guy. I've seen the guy on Graham Norton. He just gets really drunk, and I just think he's insulting and obnoxious. And I think people gloss over the fact that, you know, I know it's in his early days, and we should always look to forgive and forget, but he blinded a Vietnamese guy purely because he was Vietnamese. Yeah, He's a fucking arsehole. I can't stand him. And he's always on these fucking suggested ads where he's got this app that reminds him when to pray. And I've got an app that reminds me to fucking call Mark Wahlberg up and say that he's a fucking knob. It's fucking exhausting seeing this cunt do the same. And he does the same film. He does Deep Water Horizon, a real-life tragic event. And then he does... What's the other one? Patriots Day. Patriot's and he's just Day. he's just trying to be the all American American. He's five foot six and goes to the gym. Fuck off. Cannot stand Mark Wahlberg. And the and Antoine Fuqua, another one. He's a shit fuck. Antoine Fucker, because his films are shit. I can't I just it was a bad film all round. It was just it was just it was trying to have all these plot twists where Danny Glover was this good guy for about eight minutes and then he was the bad guy. And then he was alright. Oh no, suddenly he's the bad guy, and I'm gonna shoot him in the throat. Fucking awful. Awful film. <laughs> I, I, on the other hand, quite enjoyed it, but I, I would, I would, I would totally concede that if you can't get on with Mark Wahlberg, it's not for you because it's entirely a Mark Wahlberg vehicle. Anything else? Well, um, no, but I watched the Social Network. So, what I've been doing is, uh, when, before I've been going to work at two, I've been getting up at like seven and just had fuck all to do. So I've just been kind of like sticking on like TV shows and series, uh, TV shows and films. Sorry, and um, yeah, I watched the Social Network. Then I watched Shooter, and then I was in for about five days in a row, so I was just, I was gubbed. And then last night, watched Elf and the Grinch. Yeah. What, the Jim Carrey Grinch? Yeah, yeah, no, fuck Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, um, do, do, I mean, do you enjoy that? I mean, does it stand up? I haven't watched it in years. It's actually funnier. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it when it came out. I liked it's kind of, it had a, just, it had a little bit of a, a dark edge to it when it came out, which I quite enjoyed. Well, yeah, like, we watched it last night, and there's a, a, a literal swinging 
party in the middle of the film, which oh, that's went... right. They all put they all put their keys yeah. in the bowl, don't they? Oh, like, oh yeah, it goes over people's heads, doesn't it? What? <laughs> I couldn't yeah. believe it. Wow, this the this the things they try and sneak through, man. They'd never get away with that now. That'd be all over social media within like a week of it being released. Yeah, no, it was absolutely disgraceful. You couldn't believe it. Okay, anything else? No. So I watched a couple of new films. Well, one new release, one slightly less new, but certainly one that came out this year. I went to the cinema to watch uh, She Said. Okay. So as we mentioned before, this is the story of Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor, the New York Times investigative journalist who broke the story of uh, Harvey Weinstein's horrendous sexual misconduct and the wider system that enabled him. Uh, they won the. They broke the story wide open. The, the facts that they brought to light led to his conviction for for crimes. They won the Pulitzer Prize deservedly for their work, and it's a, another you know great example of you know investigative journalists you know doing important work. Um, similar films about investigative journalists doing that kind of thing include Spotlight and All of the President's Men, which regarded as classics of the genre. So there's always an expectation when this story is as big as that, right? This story is as big as the Boston Globe breaking the news of the Catholic Church covering up sexual abuse. And, yeah. I think, and I think it's as big as Watergate. It's one of the biggest issues of the present day. And they did excellent work to break the story. So there's always this expectation that when you make the movie, you hope the movie is going to be as good as Spotlight was or as good as All the President's Men was. And it's not. It's... And, and it's, maybe it's unfair to compare it to those really? two, right? Well, it's Is a good it? film. It's a good film. It's solid, but unspectacular. It doesn't measure up to all the presidents men in Spotlight, which are amazing films. Do you, right? reckon it, do you reckon it thought it would do better than it could because of Spotlight and all the presidents men and how that genre is pretty much untouchable? Do you know um, what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to slag off the work the director did, but you know, you know that way that you have, you know, that you have those Oscar bait movies where you have like a homosexual gypsy Jew with mm. one foot missing, and you think, oh well, Daniel Day Lewis is going to win the Oscar this year. You know that way that maybe the, the, um, that genre yeah, or that type of film is so waterproof. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's an element of that. There maybe is an element of they're so sure that it's the worthiness of the subject matter is all you need. Maybe I don't know. Um, what I would say is that it's not made with anything like the the cinematic flair that Alan J. Pakula brought to all the President's Men. Right. And Spotlight, I mean, the guy directed Spotlight, I wouldn't say he was a hugely cinematic director. He's an actor who turned to directing and he's good in everything. But I think what was so good about Spotlight was that he just did such a good job of um, uh, portraying that ensemble of, of journalists and their process and the way they worked together. And the way they did that was so beautifully done. Um, this, I, I just get the feeling that the first of all, the, the the telling of the story is quite conventional. They mix in a bit of the personal lives of the journalists, which doesn't add a great deal. There is one quite good bit where one of the journalists, her kids are pestering her, but she's got a phone call. You know, you know, because the the, the calls come any time of the day or night that are that, that that can be key to the story getting through. Like there's a yeah. there's a call at like nearly midnight um, in all the president's men where they're trying to verify one of their sources. And you know, if they if they don't get it right, the whole thing could fall down. So it's a big moment. And in this, they've got one of those big moment movies and the kids are like doing her head in at home. And while she's on the phone, she like cradles the phone in her ear and writes down the Netflix password and gives it to her daughter so that she'll fuck off to the next room. Mm-hmm. And and that's a nice touch, right? But I, I don't think otherwise adding the personal lives of the journalists added that much. Somehow the scenes of the newsroom and the putting of the story together just didn't seem quite as compelling and cinematic. Um Right. Yeah. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but that to me seems like a really unnecessary addition. Like there was so much going on with the Weinstein thing that you didn't need to 
tell me what was going on with their lives and that. I, I, I kind of agree. I, I think the... I think you've either got to make a decision. Either you say, actually, we know the Weinstein story, we know how the story broke and everything else, so what we want to do is we're going to do a portrait of investigative journalists and how they operate and how, how their lives and work intersect. Do you know what I mean? And I suppose you could do that, or you could tell the story of the journalism that broke the Weinstein case, and this kind of doesn't do an, one or the other fully. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think... Part of the problem is, is that I don't think um, there's enough actual drama in the story. There is no, none of the friction of Wood, Wood and Bernstein, who initially didn't get on, and they were very different characters, and watching them try and work together was part of, the, part of what was compelling about the story. And you didn't have like stuff like in Spotlight, where you had the different characters and the way, um, the way um, Mark Ruffalo's character is so personally affected by this because he's a lapsed Catholic, and the way Michael Keaton's character is kind of may have been complicit in helping cover it up in previous previous periods. So there isn't enough actual drama between the characters because the two leads, Megan Tui and Jodie Cantor, they just seem like two decent, very professional people who fairly early on got on and worked well together. Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure that's how they were. And they should maybe deserve some credit for not inventing some drama for them. But it's like, well, not everything is cinematic. Do you know what I mean? Maybe this was would have made an amazing documentary, but it only makes like a decent film. Um, they don't seem to convey much jeopardy. There's those elements of paranoia where you know they seem like they're being followed, but they don't do enough with it. Even though I I read somewhere that Harvey Weinstein was employ, employing former like uh, espionage agents, you know, with dodgy pasts to kind of spy on and intimidate the the victims and, and people who are investigating and they don't really go into that which would have added a lot of drama and jeopardy right yeah um so uh i i, I just don't get um what the you know i I'm, I'm not sure why we watched a movie of it do you know what i mean it, it was it was I, I, i'm talking about all the things that are wrong with the film first because i actually still think it was quite good it just wasn't great it's a good movie but not a great one like they didn't capitalize on the kind of story they had to play with no, I mean, that, again, there were a few hints of what they could have done with it. There's a couple of really good scenes where the victims tell their stories, and maybe they should have focused more on that. Right. Um, because they have the stories, but then they also have this stuff with following the the uh, uh, following the journalists around and how they balance that with their work, work home with their home life. And it's like tell one story or the other would be my view. Um, and there was a couple of really effective moments. They mix in some flashbacks and a recreation of the hotel room where it all seemed to be happening. And and it was sort of like the, the, the corridor where it was happening almost looked very intimidating, like the hotel corridor in The Shining. And I just thought you could have made more out of that. But in the end, I just think it's um, it's a good, solid movie about a great event, whereas Spotlight and All the President's Men were great movies about great events. And it perhaps might have made a better documentary. But look, it was decent, and I think people should go and watch it just to stick it up Harvey Weinstein. Perfectly good film, though. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the other film I watched was on Disney Plus, so it's not a brand new release, but it came out fairly recently. Uh, See how they run. All right. Have you seen that? No, I don't actually think I know anything about it. So it's kind of a a comedy who done it, which is not to say it's a spoof of like your Agatha Christie type mysteries in, in itself, and it's not like Knives Out, which is like a like a like one of those kind of country house you know murder mysteries that kind of has a bit of a knowing wink to the audience. This is, look, we all know what happens in murder mysteries. This is kind of like a tribute to them. It's set in the 1950s, and, and the twist is that the murder takes place 
uh, in the theatre where Agatha Christie's famous murder mystery play, The Mousetrap, is being shown. Right. And it's got a cast of Sam Rockwell, Saoirse Ronan, uh, kind of like... Fact, it's got such a good cast that I'm gonna I'm gonna name them all because there's so many good actors in this. Um, so Sam Rockwell plays a British detective in London in the 1950s. Uh, his accent is impeccable. His characterization is really good. Um, it's got apart from him, it's got uh, Ruth Wilson's in it. Uh, Charlie Cooper from This Country and Stathlet's Flats, if you know either of those TV shows. Reese Shearsmith from League of Gentlemen and uh, Inside Number Nine. Adrian Brody's in it. Um, David Ayelowo's in it, uh, just uh, excellent cast. And it's kind of a, yeah, it's sort of a tribute to sort of those um, uh, murder mysteries, but it's kind of played for laughs because the characters are quite funny. Sam Rockwell's kind of a, a, a bit of a drinker and not kind of the most kind of enthusiastic of police officers, but he the one, he's the one who's got to solve the murder. Saoirse Ronan plays like a rookie police officer who's a massive like film and and uh, and, and theatre fan. So she's kind of... Uh, uh, fangirling over the fact that Richard Attenborough is one of the suspects and all this sort of thing. It, it, it's a lot of fun. Um, I think you have to be a fan of murder mysteries to, to really get into it, but it's a good cast. I mean, I'd watch them in anything, and it's a nice recreation of the 50s period London. Um, it's on Disney Plus to watch now. It's a very fun 90 minutes of uh, a kind of murder mystery that's it's it's not too heavy. It's quite light. It's quite fun. And I think it's kind of the... The joke, if it is a joke, is that it's a murder mystery taking place, you know, on the set of the mousetrap in which everything plays out like a murder mystery. But it's it, look, it's really nice stuff. You kind of sit back, like sit back in a comfortable chair and just enjoy these actors. Do you know what I mean? Because you know you're in, in good hands. You know. Yeah. But definitely an enjoyable watch. Did you uh, Did you watch any other new stuff this uh, or uh, this month? I didn't know. I got five films in. Yeah, I mean, which is a decent innings. Yeah. Like on top of the films that we watch for the podcast, but yeah, I feel I feel like I I have very little time amongst two puppies and the hours that I work. Yeah, it's not even that. Like, do you know what's great about the way you work is that you work from home, so you can finish at five and stick a film on. Yeah. Whereas I get up at seven. Puppies need walked and fed. Mm-hmm. Cool. Puppies need walked again at ten, and then I'm away to work at twelve, and then I'm not back till ten. And yeah, <laughs> so. I'm quite proud of myself for managing to get. A few no, films no, yeah, in. five films is really good. I mean, we're, we're we're sort of segueing into your New Year's resolution for the year, which is to watch more films. And five in a month yeah. on top of the features is a pretty good effort. Um, so I, I think we can consider your New Year's resolution fulfilled this month. My New Year's resolution was to to do this year long project, uh, 2022 Kubrick Odyssey, in which I watch all of Kubrick's films. And given this is December. Uh, we are now bringing this project to its shattering climax in which we watch Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, came out in 1999, uh, famously starred real-life husband and wife Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Almost as famously, it seemed to put them under a great deal of pressure and they actually split up not long after this film came out. Um, and, you know, be, Stanley Kubrick died after completing the film but before it was released, adding to an air of mystery around him and the film. So there's a lot to discuss in the film as well. Um, you seen Eyes Wide Shut? Uh, no, but I know what it's about. Yeah. So, and and one of the things that I think we'll 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 cover is that when we did um, conspiracies and film related conspiracies earlier in the in in the podcast, and we also went into this sort of thing in more detail on the the companion podcast on uh, uh, on the Adamsons versus the the conspiracy theory. There is a conspiracy around this that the Illuminati or the, the you know the rich elites killed Kubrick for 
revealing what they get they, what they get up to at their sex parties, like the Epstein stuff. And I think I'll I'll mention that as as we go through it. So Eyes Wide Shut is based on an old Austrian novel, which uh, translates uh, as Dream Story from its from its German title. Uh, Kubrick wanted to make this film for about thirty years. He even considered doing it um, in the early eighties as more of an out and out sort of farcical comedy with Steve Martin. Steve Martin had done a couple of kind of slightly more dramatic roles. So he'd done his comedies and then he'd done a couple of kind of more serious kind of dark stuff like Pennies from Heaven. And uh, Stanley Kubrick considered him in the Tom Cruise role, which would, would have been a very different film. Um, but essentially what, it, what, what the film is about is um, Tom Cruise plays a, a successful doctor in New York. Uh, he, he and his wife, Nicole Kidman, are doing well for themselves, but not as well as, as Tom Cruise's wealthy patients, if you see what I mean. They go to this party where they have a glimpse of how like the super wealthy live. They're having a great time. Um, they get home afterwards. There's a couple of incidents at the uh, at the party where it turns out that his, 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 his patient and friend has been having, you know, having sex on the side with a prostitute and she overdoses on drugs and he... Um, he discreetly deals with it and helps the girl, you know, not die and cause a scene and everything. Um, and at the party, he's propositioned by two women and, and she's propositioned by a sort of a charming smoothie sort of older man. And afterwards, maybe a couple of days later, they talk about how, you know, Tom Cruise seems quite complacent and relaxed about men chatting his wife up because he knows that she'd never do anything. She reveals that actually she sometimes fantasizes about, you know, having affairs or even leaving them because because that's what people do this throws him for a complete loop and um he uh, he goes off on this kind of journey he's so thrown off he loses all his confidence in this kind of you know secure existence he's been living where he's the one his wife's at home looking after the kids and he's the one that that's getting chatted up i think is the issue right and suddenly he realizes that his wife is you know just as capable as as he is of of having an affair and and almost did and that really blows his mind uh, and he goes off and goes on this kind of um almost in like an odyssey where he sneaks into like a wealthy sex party that he hears about. And this is where all of this stuff about, you know, masked people and, and Masonic kind of rituals. Uh, and they, they, they unmask him and threaten his life if he tells anyone about what's going on. Uh, and while he's going around there, he sees various other things like a prostitute propositions him on the street. He sees like a, a man kind of almost trafficking his teenage daughter because he realizes that there's money to be made. Uh, and 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 at the end of it, he kind of realizes that he's um, he needs to talk to his wife about what's been going on, basically. And it's um, it's 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 a weird film. And what I'll say is this: is that I watched it, and I thought about it, and I made a couple of notes about the film for for this podcast because this, that's what I do. And I sort of went, I actually need to watch this again. Because there's always so much going on in Kubrick films, and most of his other films I've watched more than once. Like not his early ones, you know what I mean? The the the, the early couple that I did at the beginning, um, but everything from the Killing onwards, I've 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 seen mo most of his films. I've seen multiple times. Put it that way, and it's like, can a film that's got so much going on in it, can I adequately talk about it after just one viewing? And even after the second viewing, I'm like, oh, I, I, I'm not sure I've. I'm not sure I've picked up everything Kubrick's trying to say, but I, I think I kind of have what it's trying to say. And I think there's some clues right at the beginning. The opening shot is of Nicole Kidman naked, and you think, oh, wow, this is going to be all about sexual exploration. 
But then she's kind of just putting her clothes on and it's all very humdrum and it's all very normal. And the next thing you see is that he's kind of tying his bow tie while she's on the toilet. And I think what you're trying to trying to show is that a married couple have got very much into like a comfortable kind of, um, not a rut, but they're kind of, you know, everything about their kind of day-to-day existence is very everyday. And, you know, she's, you know, you know, at, at home, she's like, you know, she used to work in a gallery and quite, a, you know, an art gallery is quite a glamorous existence. And now she's just at home picking cereal out of the out of the carpet while the little daughter goes to school. Um, and you actually see Nicole portrayed as just a wife. Do you know what I mean? Whereas Tom Cruise is, a, is, is in his like smart suit and they're about to go to a party. And I think what it says is that Tom Cruise, even though they've got kids and everything, is going out, looks smart. He's a doctor. Everyone likes a doctor. He's a good looking guy. And people, you know, women often kind of show an interest in him. And Nicole Kidman's stuck at home. And I think that's kind of the instigating incident. Because when they're at the party, Nicole Kidman throws back a couple of drinks and seems really kind of like, um, it's almost like the guy chatting her up is the only excitement she's had in about a year. Do you know what I mean? And and, yeah. when, and when Tom Cruise isn't remotely bothered by that, um, that kind of really pisses her off. So she tells this story that she probably shouldn't have told him about the fact that she was once attracted to a guy. Because I think the moral of the story is Stanley Kubrick is saying, yeah, mate, your wife sees other blokes and thinks they're good looking. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And it's best not to dwell on it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, but I mean, he kind, of, he kind of provokes it as well because two women essentially invite him off for a threesome at the party. Mm. And he's obviously loving the fact that he's a handsome doctor and women like him. Do you know what I mean? And I think he's very comfortable with the fact that his wife is safe at home looking after the kids. And I don't think he's ever going to do anything about it or isn't considering doing anything about it at the start of the film. But he does like the fact that women are interested in him. And it's kind of like what Kubrick does is kind of says to Tom Cruise's character, right, mate, I'm going to turn your life upside down. Everything you thought you were comfortable with, you're not. Your wife could go and have an affair with a guy tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? And you're, you know, you're not as secure as you think you are. And and then the film, what it does is it explores the kind of fragility of the male sexual ego. And I think the reason Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's husband and wife had obviously interested Tom Cruise, but I think what also interested him is Tom Cruise has always been, regardless of what his kind of personal uh, life is, because I don't really know what his personal life is, but there's always been kind of rumours of Scientology and everything else. On film, he has always been um, this uh, kind of epitome of like, uh, you know, perfect masculinity. Do you know what I mean? Throughout the 80s and 90s, it was like, oh, Tom Cruise, he's a matinee idol type. And for him to kind of go, oh, I, 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 I to, to, to be completely thrown off by what his wife tells him kind of says, he's kind of, he's putting masculinity in the male ego in the mixer and saying, what are you going to do? You know, you're, you know, you know, your confidence around your, you know, about the women in your life is completely misplaced. And I think that's what I think that's what Tom Cruise is doing. And and when he goes to sort of the the sex party, he doesn't do anything. And when he goes to, when this woman propositions him, he doesn't do anything. And he's kind of deciding what he's going to do about these kind of. It's almost like he's saying his wife was so says she was so close to leaving him because she was hugely attracted to this man. It's almost like he feels like he has to level the score. Do you know what I mean? And goes to these sex parties and is one one and but but keeps struggling to go through with it. And I think there's a couple of things going on. One is. Kubrick is telling the difference between, you know, these fantasies about sexual sex orgies or, or like being propositioned by a stranger. Kubrick's going, well, the reality of that is not nearly as glamorous as it sounds. You know what I mean? Because all of those women at their sex parties are prostitutes, and they're you know a lot of them are probably on drugs, and you know, and you know he's and that's why at the beginning of the party there's a woman who is OD'd because she's a, she's a, a drug user, 
and 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 I think what Kubrick's saying is is that the actual reality behind these things you fantasize about would not be very nice. And you know, the woman, the stranger proposition on the street again is a prostitute, and that's not exactly a, a safe existence to be on the streets of New York soliciting sex from men. And um, the the idea of like you know being attracted to you know you know hot you know barely legal teenage girls is like a frequent kind of you know you know fantasy. And the reality behind that is that you know maybe a man would like traffic his own daughter because of the money that's to be made. So Kubrick is kind of p peeling back a layer and going, well, these if you try to make these things anything other than a fantasy, it gets dark and nasty really fast. It, it felt to me that that's what Kubrick was trying to say about this. There's also an element of like the dream sequence around this because he goes off in the night and a woman, you know, a, a woman patient propositions him. Uh, her husband's just died or her father's just died and she's in an emotional state and she almost kind of reaches out to him because she finds him attractive and he's kind of, he's kind of taken aback by this. He goes to the sex party, doesn't follow through with anything. And there's almost like this dream element where he goes back to where the sex party was and there's no evidence that any of it took place. He walks down the street and, and, and it's like, he, he keeps conjuring up these scenarios of sexual fantasies and can't actually um, go through with any of them, like he's in a dream, like he's trapped in some sort of dream that you can't kind of follow through with what you're trying to do. Um, and there's been all sorts of, you know, interpretations of this and interpretations of all sorts of uh, Kubrick's, you know, fantasies. They looked at the names of the, the characters, like, you know, is this some sort of, you know, subtext about, you know, Tom Cruise's own relationship with, with Mel Kidman? Um, there's, you know, it takes place at Christmas. Is he saying something about Christmas? You know, th there's all sorts of things that, that, that go on in this. And, and personally, I would say this is a fascinating film, but I probably need to watch it a couple more times be before I really get it, if you see what I mean, because I think there's so much going on. But I, I think I got what he was trying to say. And I think like all of these things, it's brilliantly done. But it was, there's, I'm still not sure on some of the stuff like the way that these kind of strange theme music themes keep being played strangers in the night keeps being played almost out of tune on the piano and is this is this is this a dream is this all happening in tom cruise's head i'm not sure and i think i probably need to watch it a couple more times to really kind of arrive at what i think of all this um obviously there are some stories that put some strain on the tom cruise and nicole kidman marriage stanley kubrick insisted on keeping tom cruise and nicole kidman apart so nicole kidman didn't see any of the scenes where tom cruise is hanging around with nude women at the sex party um, they obviously film Tom Cruise has this nightmarish fantasy of his wife with other men uh, Kubrick didn't let Tom Cruise see the set when Nicole Kidman's filming her sex scenes with 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 the other men for those dream sequences um, he made them kind of tell him lots of like secrets about their marriage to kind of get them to kind of he wanted them to be in character but I think it seemed it put them all under a great deal of, of, of strain it, it was a 400 day shoot all Jesus in the UK. He, he basically recreated large parts of, of, of Greenwich Village on a film set in Hertfordshire. Um, he, you know, he made areas like country houses look like, you know, upstate New York. Um, and it, it is weird. I mean, none of this film is, is on an absolutely huge scale. So it is kind of a strange film to take that long to make. And I think there's an element of Stanley Kubrick kind of his, his own obsessiveness is actually, is, might be what the film's about. Do you know what I mean? Because this is about a man obsessing over something so much that he can't, that, it, that, he, that, he, that he's trapped himself in this kind of horrible state of mind. And I think there's an element of Stanley Kubrick is going, dealing with his own obsessions in that. Because his obsessions aren't sexual. His obsessions are... Um, making films, telling the story, saying what he, what he wants to say, controlling everything that he's trying to control while making a film. 
And, and, and I, I think, you know, when you hear these stories about Stanley Kubrick taking weeks and like 500 takes just to do the trailer for Full Metal Jacket, I feel like Stanley Kubrick was a man trapped inside his own kind of OCD oh. with the last few films that he made. Um, but again, I, I'm, I, I enjoyed this film. I thought it was very well made. I'm not sure I completely believe Tom Cruise aged 34 or whatever as a doctor. Um, but he was very good as a man. He's kind of lost, completely lost his bearings. Nicole Kidman, she was fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not a massive fan of, of Nicole Kidman, but she's not an incompetent actress. You know what I mean? So she played the part that she was trying to play well. It's just there's so much of this film it seemed a bit off, and it was probably on purpose. Some of the dialogue sounds like it doesn't sound right, and that's probably deliberate. And I think it's just one of those films you have to watch a couple more times to kind of, kind of do it. In terms of the big stories about the film, was was Stanley Kubrick killed for making this film? Yes. If you ask me, maybe you should watch the film yourself and, and decide to make it. For me, if you ask me, the time to kill him would have been before he delivered a finished film that was subsequently released for the world to see in a blaze of publicity. I'm not sure what killing him achieved. Um, also, um, I just don't see anything in the sort of... Uh, wealthy sex parties that would actually have offended anybody that much one because there's an element of the film that's like this could well be about us imagining that that's what the wealthy do on a weekend it's like you know of course they get up to sex parties they're rich and can have whatever they want of course they do this sort of thing rather than being any of that and while there's an element of there is a story of a man trafficking his daughter he basically starts selling his daughter for sex although she just seemed to be totally up for it um, which again is another kind of ethical kind of concern. Um, but it's almost like if she's going to be doing this, he might as well make money out of it is, is a weird thing. But there's no suggestion that any of the women at the elite sex party are trafficked. There doesn't seem to be any kind of links to the Epstein story in any of this. I get the feeling that if even if it was a 100% accurate portrayal of what the elites do, you know, uh, you know, of, of an evening with, with their kind of sex parties, they would just laugh it, uh, laugh it off over a cognac, and then go back into the party room. Um, but maybe you should watch it, and make your own mind up, mate. I just don't see anything in there that anyone would have bothered to kill him for. I think it's more likely that after a four hundred day shoot and a million takes and a million re-edits, that Stanley Kubrick finally fucking wore himself out. Do you know what I mean? That's what they want you to believe. <laughs> That's what they want you to believe. You're one of them. Yeah. No. You, yeah. What you've said there is. is pretty much all true like it it had been more implicit and they'd had like actual real life people yeah saying and, and, that and, they were getting up to no good then maybe but and if, if the, and if the story had been that the women at the party have been trafficked maybe I, I look i don't know maybe maybe you know who knows there's there's so many there's just there's so many stories around kubrick the, the other question around this film was whether this was really kubrick's final cut because he delivered this finished cut of the film to warner brothers and then died of a heart attack so there's questions over whether it was the, the final cut. There's also a question of it needed some tweaks uh, to get past the censors in, in the States because you know what they're like about sex. Gun, guns and violence is fine, but any nudity is a problem. There has um, to be a gun on a titty, not just a titty. Yeah, if you covered up and, and a woman's naked body with a gun, you'd be fine. Um, and, and basically Kubrick wasn't there to do the, the, the cuts to the film for the R rating that it got in America. So... Do you know what I mean? It's, it, 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 he didn't get the final say on exactly how to present the film in the States, but the version you see here in, in Europe is uncut, so that's what Kubrick wanted you to see. The only thing I would say is is that every other Kubrick film, he was making kind of tweaks to it right up until the day of release, or almost the day of release. So while it's pretty much Kubrick's final cut, if he had lived, he would have he'd have carried on working on it, because he always did. 
Um, as you said, there's all sorts of um, stories. Um, uh, you know, weirdly enough, there's a, there's there was an interview published after his death, purporting to be from the set of Eyes Wide Shut, and claiming to be the last interview Stanley Kubrick ever gave. But it was fake. There was some random bloke who used to go around impersonating Kubrick and giving interviews until he was arrested and kind of sued and given a restraining order. So Kubrick just attracted this kind of obsessive kind of conspiracy theories and stories and everything else. And for for to him to make a film like this, which maybe maybe real or maybe fantasy, maybe the the just the dreams of the main character or not, and it's full of so many hidden meanings and odd atmospheres. Of course, it's going to attract all of this, and you know, it's just it's it's kind of a it's an interesting final statement from Kubrick that it almost plays into his own myth a little bit. Um, yeah. But I, I don't think he wanted this to be his last film. And, and I, I do feel like, you know, I'm sort of moving into the summing up of Kubrick's kind of um, overall career. I don't think he wanted this to be his last film. I think there are films that he wanted to make before that he didn't quite make. And he was trying to get AI, AI done before he died and, and gave it to Spielberg. You know, his, his, he always... You know, you know, he, 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 he said that if he, he actually said it was his, you know, if if he died before it could get made, um, he wanted Spielberg to do it. So the question is, did Spiel, did Kubrick know he was going to die? The fact is, I think Kubrick knew it might take him another fucking ten years to get a film made because that's what it was taking him. Who knows? Um, but it doesn't feel like thirteen films is enough for a forty-five year career, especially when he only did three films in the last twenty-five years of his life. So it feels like Kubrick. Left something left something out there on the pitch. If you see what I mean, before he yeah. died. I mean, from the films you've seen of Kubrick, I mean, what what what's your overall impression of him as a filmmaker? Totally varied. Um, yeah, he made he made a couple war films. He made The Shining, which you could consider a horror. He made Two Thousand and One, which is fucking bonkers. Um, what else did he do? Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange. Which Bar- Barry Lyndon is a straight up historical drama. Except- how do you how do you even class like how do you even classify Clockwork Orange as a film? Like, what do you even put that under? I don't know. It's it's a weird one. Again, we'll never know. We won't know because it came out before either of us were born. We'll never know quite what the response to it really was when it came out because it caused such a storm. And now it wouldn't cause the same storm, even though it would still be highly controversial. He's he certainly liked to make his audience uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? I think it's very interesting that the vast majority of his films were big hits, especially after his first couple. Pass of Glory didn't do great at the box office, but got a lot of critical attention. Same with The Killing. They they, they did okay, but not brilliant. But after that, everything he did, you know, Spartacus was a big hit, Lolita, everything after that was very commercially successful. And when you consider what personal films he made and how he didn't sort of make a single compromise to make his audience comfortable, it's interesting that he was as commercially successful as he was because he he loved, I think he loved to put his audience on the spot and make them feel like they're disoriented, uncomfortable, offended, scared, confused. He just, I think he loved kind of poking and prodding and and uh, and manipulating his audience, if you see what I mean. Yeah. That's as varied as his films are. I think you're right. He's made such a wide variety of films. He was always... He was always pushing boundaries, and he was always trying to make you know put his audience through uh you know through the ringer. Um, favorite favorite Kubrick film? Oh, The Shining. Yeah, for me, I think it's Barry Lyndon, but The Shining is is a great film as well. I mean, I, I love many of his two thousand and one. It's it, it it's been a it's been a really interesting like uh, experience watching his films, especially watching them in order because you watch how his films progress because they got. You, each time I watched one more of his films, you know, you know from, you know. After 
Lolita made me really uncomfortable with this, this subject matter, but I think Kubrick was completely justified in what he was doing. I think it was a great character study of a of a paedophile. He was basically saying this is what paedophiles are like, and he was lifting the lid on what absolute kind of weirdos and scum they are. Um, but then uh, Doctor Strangelove is, is a hilarious film about the apocalypse, which is very Kubrick. But after that, every film after that, you sort of, I felt like I was getting into deeper and deeper waters every time I watched one of his films. You know, even um, even Full Metal Jacket, which gets a bit conventional in the second half, that first hour in the basic training, watching um, uh, uh, D'Onofrio's character go off the wall, I just feel like every time I was, I was, I was getting into deeper and weirder and stranger waters every time I watched one of his films. So it was a very... It was a rich and unsettling experience watching these films as well, I'll say. You picked a good director. Um, yeah, I'm, I've, I've got some thoughts about what I'm going to do next year, which I think will, uh, for my news resolution, I'm not going to unveil that just yet. Um, but I have enjoyed, this is two years running, I've done one of these resolutions where I've explored a filmmaker's um, uh, movies, and I, I think I'm going to keep doing that because it's. Uh, I've really enjoyed doing this. What about the year of the Michael Bay? <laughs> I think one month of Michael Bay would feel like a year. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's our um, so that's the Kubrick entry for this month. That completes 2022 a Kubrick Odyssey, and it is going to be uh, released as a, an anthology. I'm going to take all the all, all the like I did with Year of the Carpenter. I'm going to take all of these kind of. Uh, mini features out of the episode and release it as one uh, just before the new year get it out there for people to watch a bit of bonus content uh, and then next next year when we do our news resolutions for 2023 i will unveil a new project uh, but that's it for uh 20 uh 2020 kubrick odyssey for this year and, and unless you have anything else to add mate that's all for this month's roundup yep Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list and you can make recommendations there or in all the usual places on our socials. This month we look at the Best Picture Oscar winner for 2014, which cemented its director's reputation as a critical darling. The classics and recommended feature for episode 32 is Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Um, so this, this is me. The, the whole point of the classics feature is it's a film one or both of us hasn't seen. I haven't seen this before. I think you have, mate. I think you've seen this before we did this. I saw it when it came out, yeah. Yeah. So what was your history with it? Did you go and see it? Um, before it won all its Oscars or did you just go and see it when it came out or, or, or how did you approach the film in the I went to see it at the cinema I think with your mum and dad oh right so this just, is... it was, it was, I was down uh, at, I think it was Christmas or New Year and um, yeah just went to see it in the cinema and yeah. it was uh, very good yeah you enjoyed it yeah yeah did you think it should have been the best picture Oscar winner for that year no, I think it should have been um, Best Actor, though. I can't remember who won it um, that year. Yeah, but, that's right. Uh, Michael, Michael Keaton, it's the famous, there's a famous clip of, of Michael Keaton um, uh, almost had his speech in his hand, getting ready to kind of go up and accept the award, and you can see him putting it back in the pocket when someone else is announced, and I'm racking my brain uh, now to try and remember who it was now. Um, Eddie Redmayne, th um, Theory of Everything. Oh. Jesus Christ, yeah. Well, you know my opinions on that. 
Yeah, I think we've discussed before how there's almost like this bias against kind of fictional characters winning awards at the Oscars these days. And uh, a real life character with a disability uh, is almost certain to win. And the You've made a very strong argument in the past that it was somewhat exploitative for them to 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 use disability the way they did. It was solely to get Eddie an Oscar. That's all it was for. Yeah, it wasn't to raise awareness for motor neuron disease because yeah. everyone knows who fucking Stephen Hawking is. Yeah. So, other than that, though, Birdman won Best Picture. Inaritu won Best Director. Um, I think it won several other. It won Best Original Screenplay. Uh, yeah, it won everything. Um, you know, it didn't win the ones that it couldn't be kind of uh, nominated for, although it wasn't even nominated for Best Original Score, although I think that's probably because it didn't have a great deal of music. In the, It doesn't have a great deal of music in the movie, does it? It's kind of, um, it's almost like, it plays out almost as like a single, t- or tries to play out as a single take, or lots of long takes, like following, um, following. No, it's, like a, it's, meant to, it's meant to seem like an, a complete yeah. take. Similar to um, 1917, yeah. Oh yeah, but it does it a little bit better than nineteen seventy, just because nineteen seventy does a tremendous job given the fact that it's a war film. These mm-hmm. films tend to have loads of different tiny cuts. Yeah, but um, so it deservedly won best cinematography given the way that it was filmed. But it's amazing that it wasn't even nominated for film editing, given someone has edited that film to make it look like it's a single take, even though it clearly wasn't. It's very interesting that it wouldn't even be nominated for its editing. How odd is that? Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> But uh, that's the Oscars for you. Um, so this film was a big hit on release. Uh, it made $120 million on an $18 million budget, which for like an Oscar sort of drama is is very good. Uh, it won a, you know, a number of awards, as we just discussed. Um, it centers on Michael Keaton playing an aging film actor. It has parallels with his Batman career, but but different, where essentially he, he was a... The character he plays in the film was a respected theatre actor who then went off and played... Birdman in in an action block superhero blockbuster became very famous and, and and after that was always known as like you know a big cinema movie star rather than a um an actor with some credibility. Uh, now his his career is on the down and he's put all all his remaining money into a film, uh sorry into a, a theatre production of, of a of a, uh, a highly regarded writer a real life writer I think that he's that he's uh, that he's uh, covering, um in. You know, in the hope that it will give him the kind of credibility as an artist that he he doesn't feel he's missing. He's had commercial success, but not artistic credibility. And it follows him and his troubled relationship with his daughter, his kind of yeah. struggles with himself. And it's kind of one of those films about, it's a film about acting. It's a film about filmmaking. It's a film about creative people. Um, with ob- obviously lots of stuff in there. There's some interesting supporting roles from Emma Stone as his daughter, Edward Norton as a, a real kind of dickhead of an actor. Um, do you like those sorts of films, mate? Do you, do you like um, those f- films about films, films about filmmakers? Um, I didn't even see it as that. I just thought it was a, it was great performances. That's all this film was about for me, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I didn't see it as like, a, oh, a, a film within a film, or oh, it's a film about actors. I didn't. See, it was that. I just thought it was like this guy's struggle with coming to grips with the fact that he's not a big movie star anymore. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I guess the same. I mean, I, I do enjoy those types of films, so I, I am sort of looking for like little bits, like um, you know, who are these actors based on? I mean, obviously, it was. I thought it was interesting that they would pick Michael Keaton, who. I mean, interesting enough. I don't think my. It, it, I think it's funny when actors play. It's almost like a what if scenario, isn't it? Because Michael Keaton's almost doing what if I hadn't been as successful as I'd, as I'd wanted to be. Do you know what I mean? Um, 
and, and and I was this kind of broken man with only with only had one big hit because obviously actually Mark Keaton's got a lot of credibility. He would be you know he was in a number of other good films, and 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 after he'd played a superhero, he went back and had had a lot of credibility in a lot of roles. But it's almost as if he's doing a what if part. What if what if I'd you know what if I'd fallen apart like this? Do you know what I mean? I thought that was interesting. Um, yeah, it's definitely a great cast. Very good acting. The script is quite sharp. It's very strikingly shot, as you said. Um, you know, there's stuff like I thought there's very some very sort of iconic scenes, like the one where he is he having a cigarette outside, and he's got his he's almost got like a dressing gown on because he's got to get in costume in a minute, and then he, he gets shut out of the the theater, and he loses his dressing gown. He's got to run round through busy New York in his pants and gets filmed, and it goes viral to get back into the theater. I thought that was quite good. Um, He's he's almost in sort of he's almost talking to himself. He's being haunted by by the Birdman character that he played. He's almost like voiceovering him, and he's wrestling with a lot of stuff. Um, it's uh, I thought it was interesting. Have you seen BoJack Horseman? Um, no. What's that about? BoJack Horseman is it, although it's a, like a an animated show where half the characters are just normal humans and the other half are like talking animals, which is very weird and surreal. Bojack Horseman is a former TV star who has got substance abuse and kind of mental health issues and has done a lot of things in his life he's not proud of. And he's been living off his success since the 1990s when he's trying to kind of get his life together and he's trying to be successful again. And he's um, it covers similar territory in a more surreal way, although it's more about Hollywood in general and it's about a lot of this, but it covers similar territory in a similar way. And I also thought it, you know, the, the the Nick Cage film that came out this year, when Nick Cage plays himself, was a variation on on, on a similar theme. So it's it's quite interesting. It reminded me of a, of similar films, you know, adaptation all about Eve, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where you know Leo Leo plays an actor whose whose career is on the decline. So I, I like that sort of thing. It reminded me a lot of that stuff. I think it's very um, very well done. I mean, I didn't think it was the best film of the year either. I thought I would actually have liked uh, Nightcrawler to win that year. I thought that was the best film of the year. And we'll, we'll come to that in The Hidden Gem. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was very good. I think it was... Um, Michael Keaton is excellent. I think he does an excellent job of, um, you know, playing this kind of character who's kind of wrestling with stuff. Um, what did you think of the ending? It's one of those kind of inconclusive endings. What, 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 what did you think of the way they finished the film? Um. Yeah, uh, I th- I didn't put too much thought into it because by that point I thought the the character spoiler alert spoiler alert sorry, um the character was dead, um because he shoots himself on stage he replaces a, a blank with a with a live round and he for the final performance he's going to kill himself, and um he doesn't he ends up shooting his nose off, um but. What happens is, is that I guess there's a number fi- of theories about what what happens. The next, final right? the final scene is is that he's visited in hospital by Emma Stone and everyone's gone fucking bananas because he's uh, he's shot himself on stage, and she looks out the window and she, it's, it's suggested that her dad has become Birdman. Yeah, and so. he's he's flown away and become, you know, the character that's haunted him. Yeah, because th- throughout the film he's walking along and he's it's almost like it's the voice in his head. The voice in his head is Birdman, the character he played in those superhero films, and it's going, oh, you don't want to do this shit. You don't want to do a theatre play. You want to be like a, you know, you want to be a guy who blows shit up. 
and he kind of he fantasizes about kind of cars blowing up beside him and he fantasizes about flying around New York like Birdman. Um, so it, I, I guess you could interpret the ending of the film a, a, a more than one way, couldn't you? Yeah. So he's either dead and he's he's just like he's gone, or his daughter's pretending that she like that she's hallucinating. So that's why you. Or, do, or, they, or, or does he jump out the window, or you know, or she looks. The thing is, he jumps out the window and she looks up as if he's flown away. Yeah, and and maybe he's just imagining because he imagines flying away as Birdman before, um, and he's, he might just be imagining being Birdman again. Is it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I really enjoyed this. I think the the quality of the performance, I think, is what runs it. It's obviously very well shot as well. I mean, the cinematographer did an amazing job. Um, Inaritu, what do you think of Inaritu as a director? Um, he's very. I don't know. He's he's very much about the performances, isn't he? Yeah. He um. His he always gets a good performance out of his cast, um, and he's, his scripts are always sharp and spot on. But in terms of style, he likes long shots. Obviously, you get that in the Revenant as well. Mm-hmm. He likes very strikingly presented films, and you know, the cinematography is very important to him as well. Yeah, um, and I think. Similarly, um, Revenant had sort of dream sequences in it as well. So obviously, he likes he likes kind of exploring what's going on inside the heads of his characters rather than just watching them behave on screen. If you see what I mean? Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, I I would say if you enjoy again, I mean, if if you just want and enjoy this film for the performances and what the characters are like, you know, maybe you won't like these suggestions. I do think if you like this sort of exploration. Of like flawed, you know, movie stars, actors, and 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 the Hollywood scene. I think BoJack Horseman is an incredible show. It's absolutely amazing. I think it's still on Netflix. It's an amazing, amazing show. It's just, it's a lot of thirty minute episodes, so you can just kind of you know watch them and dip in and out. Um, but you might find yourself just binging on it. I love the Nick Cage film that came out this year. It's a variation on this theme. I also think if you like this sort of thing, you really really like adaptation where Nick Cage plays real-life screenwriter Charlie Kaufman, who is wrestling with the adaptation of a, of, of a book into a film. Uh, and he and his imaginary twin brother, um, who plays a rival writer, kind of are having struggles with each other. I like that sort of thing, and I did like this kind of... It's almost like a peek behind the curtain about the struggles of people who are, who are trying to make films or trying to make plays. Um And But again, I think the performances are what carry it, really, isn't it? And the, 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 the long-take stuff... I think this film would have been as good even without that. Do you know what I mean? I thought it was very stylishly shot, but I think if it had just been like about the performances, the actors and everything, I think that would also have worked really well because Ed Norton's great. Naomi Watts is very good. Michael Keaton's fantastic. Emma Stone's very good. Um, it's, def- it's definitely worth a watch. I-, I think there's an element of... It's kind of like Inaritu gets perhaps a little bit over-rewarded at the Oscars, but he's still very good. And I think his films are very good. And I very much enjoyed this. What what were your final thoughts? What were your final thoughts watching this film? Um, I don't suppose I had too many. I just really enjoyed it. I think yeah. it's a film that you just watch and you sit back and you don't put too much attention into it and you just enjoy it. Yeah, I think you know? Mike, Michael Keaton does a really good job of the... You know, yeah, he was robbed. I mean, he was never going to win because Eddie Redmayne played a disabled man. And that's that's the real shame about this film. So I think you should watch it and pretend Michael Keaton did actually win an Oscar. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, that would be my my two pence. Yeah, about he, it. He, he did win a Golden Globe for what that's worth. Um, but yeah, I I, I agree. Is I that think, because they do the comedy musical thing? Yeah, which is weird. It's like imagine having best actor in a horror or western. It's so weird to just chuck two random genres in and have a separate award for it. It's fucking weird. Um, Bizarre. Yeah, but there you go. Um, I think one year Jack Nicholson won the Golden Globe for best actor in a musical or comedy for About Schmidt, and in his exception speeches, and I'm really confused. I thought we made a drama. <laughs> fuck's sake man. oh and Andrea Riseborough's in it and she's very good as well I should always mention Andrea Riseborough she's excellent that would be my that would be my one criticism of it is that it does feel like there's an excellent cast but it's not used as effectively it's almost like they've they've assembled an ensemble cast and then made a film about just about Michael Keaton's character (laughs) yeah but they're all really good. They're all they're all on it, and there's 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 a lot of fun to be had. I've just looked it up. It was Raymond Carver. That's a real short story that that that, that he's doing a Broadway adaptation of, and I think there's a lot of fun in there to be had about you know the pretentiousness of you know of, of the main character and stuff. It's uh, yeah, I think it's really good. It's definitely for you know for, probably maybe maybe I'm the only person who didn't get get around to watching it, but it certainly gets a thumb, thumbs up from me. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month's feature was well reviewed and did reasonably well at the box office when it came out but was overlooked at awards time and best of year lists in favour of many inferior films. The hidden gem for episode 32 is Nightcrawler. So James, had you seen this before I recommended it for the podcast? Uh, no, I knew of it, and I knew kind of what the themes and the plot was, what the plot was about, basically. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I saw this when it came out at the cinema. I, I remember seeing the synopsis and going, "Yeah, that that sounds amazing," uh, and loved it when I saw it. And you know, so it's me banging the drum for this one. It's the hidden gem. Uh, obviously, will uh, you know your thoughts and it will will emerge as we talk it through. Um, so by way of um, <clears throat> by way of summary. Jake Gyllenhaal, is it Gyllenhaal or Gyllenhaal? I'm never quite sure you pronounce his, his, his surname, but let's let's go with Gyllenhaal for now. Jake Gyllenhaal plays um, an out of work or not very successful and slightly strange young man who appears to be stealing like scrap metal or whatever he can get his hands on to scratch a living, um, yeah. and then realizes that there are people out there with um, video cameras who rush out to film they, they basically have a video like a, a video camera and a, a police band radio and they race to be the first people on the scene at an accident or a crime or an incident so they can get footage of it so they can then sell it to the news channels pretty much yeah and when he realizes that it's sort of it's like the perfect job for him because it's solitary it's 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 it happens at night and he seems to be almost a nocturnal character um, and it's well suited to people who are prepared to kind of pretty much go to any lengths to get the shot um, and it follows him as he gets very good in the in the in the in the, in the competency sense of um, <clears throat> of of you know catch, get, get, getting this being a scumbag and getting this footage and how he exploits those situations and how he manipulates and and, and gets in with the the TV station that needs his footage and how he gets increasingly kind of um, almost psychotic in his pursuit of of success and it's very much a vehicle for Jake Gyllenhaal's performance but it's also 
it's also kind of a portrayal of kind of the sort of the dark side of LA at night. It's shot on digital. Most of it takes place at night and it shows people at their worst. You know, it shows people in the middle of accidents. It shows kind of various kind of news crews fighting for like fighting for ratings and fighting to get shots of blood and death. Uh, it, so it's dark in more ways than one. It's sort of about the way you know, events are exploited for, for news ratings. So it's a bit of a comment on the media as well as a comment of this kind of, you know, strange character. So that's kind of what it's about. It's kind of plays out like a thriller um, as well. So it's not kind of, um, it doesn't play out as like a serious drama making statements. It plays like a thriller following this kind of very sort of, you know, anti-heroic character. Um, so what, what were your thoughts on reading the synopsis before you watched it, mate? It felt like it was basically targeting like TMZ. Yeah. It just felt like it was about just the how assholes, like in the media, want the news story just to sell it. They don't give a fuck about the people that are actually get they're telling the story about. You know what I mean? Yeah. It felt like they were just um, it was it was basically t- and the the main culprit for that. I mean, they're all bad for it. Like the sudden all newspapers, I imagine, have these mm-hmm. these cunts that work for them because every newspaper needs the the photographs. But TMZ seem to be the ones that are. Uh, you know, just talked about the most for being just cunts in general. And if you speak about them, you get kind of blacklisted. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember um, uh, George Clooney being really, you know, vocal about the, the way he was being followed around by people who were like, uh, you know, just uh, almost like just hang, just hanging off him wherever he went just so they could get short of something, anything, you know? Yeah. Um, and he's, you know, he's just a person walking around. This isn't like a, you know, because there's a lot of sh- sh- shots basically in this of like, car crashes and ambulances like attending to people who are horribly injured um and so you um you know you really you really do see the kind of the dark side of life um what did you think of jake gyllenhaal's performance or i'm gonna pronounce it i'm gonna pronounce it eight ways on this but what do you think of his performance i thought it was really good yeah i think it's actually jake uh jake gyllenhaal's or gyllenhaal or gyllenhaal donnie darko's best performance so um he almost looks like a vampire, doesn't he? He looks like he hasn't eaten yeah, a square meal pale. in a week. Yeah. yeah, he's like pale and, and and skinny, like he's hungry, like he's almost like he, you know, he's he, he really he really does look like he's hungry and ravenous and 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 gonna you know just really haunting. He looks really haunting in this film, and he and his performance is that weird mix of looking like a scruff but being sort of very eloquent in a sort of disturbing way, like he's like he's very well spoken but he doesn't under, doesn't really know how human beings talk. It's very weird and scary, um, but uh, yeah, it feels feels like all the all the things that are disturbing about the modern world and the media trends and new developments that depress you and make you worry for the future. He's describing, um, he sort of portrays the person who thrives in that kind of rather despicable world, doesn't he? Yeah, um, it really does kind of enlighten. It makes you think. Like we've always known that the paparazzi are there, but I think it really highlights how fucking assholey they are. You know, cunty these people can be. Yeah, he's he's a very good kind of. Um, so the director is a guy called Dan Gilroy. He's a he's a screenwriter. He's responsible for a lot of the writing of the of the, that new Star Wars show Andor. He's done some of the script writing for uh, Kong Skull Island. Apart from this film as a director, he's got a bit of a journeyman CV. This is kind of very much stands out as kind of the most highly regarded film he's directed. I think he's related to Tony Gilroy, the uh, the filmmaker. Um, but he he sort of he uses Lou Bloom, the character that Jake Jing Hall plays, as a sort of 
he's the voice of all of this stuff that he's trying to say. I think it's a, I think it's a good example of. I mean, we talked about she said, and we talked about how sometimes films think that if they're making an important statement, that's all you need to do. This film's a very good example of using the cinema to kind of dramatize and do a very good job of making what you're trying to say compelling. Because he uses the Lou Bloom character as kind of the voice of some of the things that he's trying to say. He. He's actually up front of like the cynicism of the newspeople. He actually goes up to Rene Russo as the news executive that he, that he meets and um, and says he he's, he understands that they're they're struggling for ratings, so he knows that they need his footage. He understands the demands of the public. Like this, does this whole speech about how um, crime is going down, but coverage of crime is going up, and it makes people think the crime is worse than it is. And obviously, the, he's, he's been very upfront that the news has got that agenda. And rather than sort of criticizing the fact that that's happening, his character was like, "I know this is happening. I don't give a shit. I just want to make money out of it." And he's a really good. He's a really good narrator for the points that the film is trying to make. If you see what I mean, because then he talks about the racial and socioeconomic bias. It's like you know how much people care about something that's happened to a black person, or how much they care about a black victim versus a black suspect in in a, in a criminal situation, and you know socioeconomic biases. You know, he's very, very good. And as well as being the sort of a character study of this kind of birth of a monster, he uses the film, Dan Gurra uses the film, I thought, very effectively to make points, but without preaching. He tells the story, he makes those points while, 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 while thrilling you, while making, while making you watch a compelling thriller movie, I thought. Yeah, no, it's, um, it is. It's a very. I think Jake Gyllenhaal Hall's kind of in that stage of career where he just does these kind of films now, doesn't he? Like, what was the other one? End of Watch. Yeah. Which was like again, it wasn't the same thing, but it was you know similar. It wasn't you know. He's kind of. He's he kind, kind of, of does anything. He's like he transcends it, everything. He's finally he? got a good niche for himself, hasn't he? He's kind of saying. I mean, he could play the straightforward hero, and he's done that quite well a couple of times. I really like that Source Code film that he did, but it's almost like he's worked out that his niche is to play these slightly off-center characters. Yeah. It's not even like necessarily offset because he does. He's done a bit of everything. He was in Marvel, mm-hmm. and he was in. Um, he was. He did that film Southpaw where he played a boxer, mm-hmm. and he got really bulked up. And then he did. Um, he's done films like this. He, I think yeah. he knows that he can do anything, but this no, is like the kind uh, of thing yeah, he's, he's good at. Yeah. Um, I mean, I liked some of. The, I mean, what did you think of the other performances? There was Bill Paxton as the rival newsman. I liked him. He's always he was always good value whenever he was in something, wasn't he? Yeah, I thought it's he, he, interesting because he plays that kind of character who is when you first see him, he is kind of you know to the audience he goes, oh what an asshole! He's an ambulance chaser, literally an ambulance chaser. But then as Lou Bloom's character overtakes him and starts to do stuff that even he wouldn't do, he kind of becomes almost like a moral voice to say, "Fucking hell, you're a scumbag! Look at what you're doing!" Do you know what I mean? And it's kind of like interesting to watch people. When you see like it's almost like the I'm, I'm stretching it because I don't think the film is talking about politics in that in that sense. But when you see what the Republican Party used to be like, and then you see what Trump's done with it, do you know what I mean? It's like watching yeah. your it's, it's watching your normal average scumbag full of like shock and disbelief when an even bigger scumbag comes along and takes his, takes over his territory. <laughs> um, and I thought Rene Russo was very good as the news executive. I thought it was interesting to see uh, an actress who wasn't afraid to. Because I think I, I, I'm not blaming other actresses for this. I think it's the system. They're very hard on women as they get over the age of about forty. They almost have to start playing grandmothers the minute they the minute they turn yeah, forty-one. Yeah, it's, it's aunties and mothers and grandmothers that yeah. don't actually play anyone of note. And I thought it was quite it was quite in that sense it was quite a bold move by Rene Rousseau to play a character to show to play a woman in her fifties to actually say she's a woman in her fifties trying to keep her career going and, and yeah and, and she's and, fine with that. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really good as well. Um, 
Did you believe the relationship between J- Jake Gyllenhaal's character and, and her? Did you believe the, the the way that kind of relationship worked out? Uh, yeah. Because there's an element. Because there's an element of not only does he ask her to make ethical kind of um, compromises for the footage to show exploitative kind of you know images of like car crashes and stuff, he kind of persuades her to to start a romantic relationship with him is almost the price of the footage. And the the way the film portrays it is that she almost does that without hesitation. It's kind of quite a comment on news people, isn't it? Yeah, it's very cutthroat, isn't it? Yeah, she's it's... literally getting into bed with someone for the you know to get into bed with the wrong person for the uh, for the uh, for the footage. Yeah, for the for basically the story in it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I've, I I I generally I know it's a film like this. It's often quite hard for the um, uh, the other characters to get. A lot of um, uh, airtime when it is all about it is it is central to um, uh, you know to the, the Lou Bloom the main character and where they do but I thought a lot of the sporting actors added a lot of value I think Riz Ahmed as the assistant was very good as well yeah no it was a good all round like kind of definitely a hidden gem kind of film because it didn't even make that much money so yeah definitely I mean, it made its money back but it wasn't as big a hit as it deserved to be it got well reviewed at the time but then when come the end of the year it barely showed up on anyone's top 10 list and i think it's easily one of the top 10 films of that year um, yeah. and obviously we haven't given away too much of the plot but obviously he he gets increasingly psychotic he goes to increasingly extreme lengths for the story and it plays out like a thriller so it really is a very compelling film it's not like one of these kind of preachy finger pointing it's like I think at the end of the film, you get the points that the uh, that the director's trying to make and the writer's trying to make, but it plays out like a thriller, so you feel on the edge of the seat the whole time. Um, and without giving away any of the plot, there's the final speech where he's talking to his team uh, as they go off to kind of, uh, you know, shoot more footage, and he says, I would never ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. You know that's true, don't you? Because there's literally nothing this guy wouldn't do, right? Yeah. So yeah, I think that's thumbs up from both of us. This is definitely worth watching if you haven't seen it. It's um, it's just a really good, exciting thriller movie. It, you know, if you don't like films that are shot on digital, that might that might throw it off for you. But you know, I think only Christopher Nolan or Quentin Tarantino would disqualify that. Everyone else, I think, is prepared to watch a good movie on digital. So uh, get it watched is what I'd say. Definitely. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we explore the surprising news that Martin Scorsese was attached to make the Joker film before it was taken over by Todd Phillips. So, had, had you heard this story before I sort of brought it up for the one that got away, mate? Um, No, but I remember when, I don't think we watched this film together, but when we discussed this film, you said it's the king of comedy, which Martin Scorsese already directed. Yeah, it's, it's so that's more, why that, is that why you find this surprising? It, it's, it's, it's. I guess the the surprising bit is that Martin Scorsese doesn't strike me as the sort of person who'd make a comic book film, especially given his comments in twenty nineteen about um, Marvel. And, yeah. um, I could see this being the sort of film that he would make because of all of those Scorsese-esque, you know, um, uh, you know, elements. Because it's not just King of Comedy. It's also a bit of Taxi Driver. It's also a bit of After Hours, which is kind of three amazing New York movies that, that Scorsese did. We're going we're to have to do After Hours for the pod one of these days because it's a fantastic film. Um, 
And obviously, when the film that did come out, you know, it's obviously a huge tribute to Scorsese in that sense. I, I guess my question is, would Scorsese have made a Scorsese-esque film, a consciously Scorsese-esque film, if if if, if someone asked him to? Is the first question. I, I, that reminded me of you know um, when Spielberg directed Ready Player One, where the book is full of references to Spielberg films, and I get the feeling that Spielberg kind of toned a lot of that down because he was like. I'm sure Spielberg's got a bit of an ego. He must look at the fucking awards shelf and his fucking box office takings and think, I'm quite good at this. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He doesn't doesn't strike me as the sort of person who's so self-obsessed that he would make a movie full of tributes to his own work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I wonder if you'd given J.J. Abrams Ready Player One, he would have made it much more Spielbergian than Spielberg himself did, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Because J.J. Abrams loves a pastiche and sometimes does a very good job of it, like in the Star Trek films. Um, and he wouldn't be ashamed to do lots of Spielberg references, and I feel like Spielberg would go, "Well, I'm not going to." Do you know what I mean? I, that feels like I'm just jerking myself off for the, for you know, for my own benefit. Um, and I wonder if Scorsese would have done that. Would Scorsese have done a King of Comedy like tribute in a film he directed himself? Do you know what I mean? And obviously, the yeah. other question was, would he really have done a Joker movie because he doesn't seem like the type, you know? Yeah, you just feel like it would. It would have, I guess we're saying this now, but because the Joker film turned out the way it did. We're saying oh, it's basically the king of comedy. So maybe March Scorsese would have taken it down a different route. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think, and we can get into that. Obviously, Todd Phillips, who did direct it, um, has put in lots of kind of relevant, you know, tributes to, to Wacking Phoenix. Because although DC always takes place in Gotham City, and there's always this element of Gotham City being, maybe it's New York, maybe it's Chicago. Do you know what I mean? This felt like a New York film, and Joaquin Phoenix felt a bit like he was playing a kind of one of those disaffected taxi driver-like characters. King King of Comedy is a closer reference, because in King of Comedy, Robert De Niro plays a character like Travis Bickle in uh, in Taxi Driver, but he plays a character who is actively trying to make it as in, in, in show business. He wants to be a comedian. And Joaquin Phoenix plays the Joker as someone who wants to be a comedian. So that's this definite kind of parallels there. And I think Todd Phillips very much leaned into that. And all, yeah. all, all directors do that. I don't have a problem with that. There's millions of films that I love that are kind of clearly heavily, heavily influenced by the films. There's loads of, like, you know, I'm, I'm a big Ridley Scott fan. Lots of his films have got little tributes to, to films that Ridley Scott's a big fan of. Um, lots of people do it. Tarantino does it. Not a problem. I don't mind it at all. Um, and it, 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 I, I remember thinking when I watched the Joker film that what Todd Phillips had done with it and the kind of the influences he'd played on, I thought they were very appropriate. I said, okay, that's actually, that's quite good. That's quite good playing, like doing the Joker origin story as one of these disaffected New York villains. I had other problems with the film. It felt a little bit like it was just exploiting mental illness a little bit. It's another movie where mental illness means psychotic violence. Do you know what I mean? Um, but, you know, it's a movie. Don't get fucked. Don't get, I don't get too hung up on stuff like that. Um, but out of the horse's mouth, Scorsese said in interviews, he, he was attached to the film. It may be, I think he was attached to the film longer as a possible producer than he was as a possible director. But he said in, a, in an interview that he spent about four years considering whether to make the film and how he would make it if he did. And that's Scorsese himself saying it. So there's, while this is pretty thin compared to some of the other ones that we do, do you know what I mean? Because we've, we've had films that were, you know, cancelled and directed by someone else. We've, we've looked at films that had an actual script. Do you know what I mean? This is much thinner than any of that. Um, but Scorsese himself says that he was attached to this film and spent a lot of time thinking about whether to make the film and how he could make it. And I think in the end, he kind of went, he didn't think he had the approach to make a comic book film. But I guess what we're doing here is we're imagining 
what sort of film do you think Scorsese would have made? Do you think Scorsese would have made a a a a, a New York a seventies eighties Scorsese New York film if he had directed it? Do you think that's something he would have done? Um, I don't really know. That's the thing. I don't. It really doesn't seem like the type of film he would direct. So I can't actually give you an idea of or my idea of what he would you know, create, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and I wonder, do you think Scorsese's mind changed at any time during this? Because one of the things um, Tony, friend of the pod, was talking about, um, uh, you know, the the Marvel film and stuff and 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 uh, and, and 4DX and stuff. And, and the, one of the other things he said, and perhaps, you know, edited his, his comment for Space was Scorsese, you know, at one point said that he wanted to make his films more immersive and he did actually make a film in 3D in Hugo, right? And then he was considering making a comic book film. And then a few years later, he feels like comic book films have kind of taken over and are ruining cinema. Do you think at some point Scorsese was a bit more interested in that sort of thing and then something changed his mind? I think it was a bit of resentment, to be honest. I think it was the resentment that he's never got the budget of a Marvel film and the support from a studio. Because mm-hmm. if he was to give, if you were to give Scorsese a $300 million budget, he would make an unbelievable film. I don't think he's the greatest director of all time that everyone seems to suggest. But if you were to give him the support and the continued support that Marvel and Disney and all these people seem to pump into films that aren't actually very good films. I think it was the kind of resentment and bitterness. It's like, oh, fuck, imagine if I had that support. Like, look at what I could do. Yeah, and it's an, it's an interesting point. And I think it's... That, what's interesting about that, right, about him not getting the support that he um, that he got, I think for a large part of Scorsese's career, that was true. And I know he has continued to, to, to struggle to make films as personal as he wants to make them. Um, but since Gangs of New York in 2002, I would say he's had more support than he had before, partly because he was able to attach himself to some big-name actors who can help him get budgets and audiences of the scale that he needs, right? You know, yeah. you know DiCaprio was very important in that. But, you know, he did Gangs of New York, which was like a $100 million budget, um, he followed that up in 2004 with The Aviator. 110 million budget. But I think some of his struggles here were about he was having to go to Miramax and work with um, Weinstein and he fucking hated Harvey Weinstein. He thought Harvey Weinstein was a, just a despicable bully and he also hated the fact that Weinstein would, would make him cut, you know, huge swathes. You know, he would always make him cut 40 minutes out of his films because Weinstein was obsessed with, you know, sh- a shorter running time. Um, he once said that if 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 he um, if Harvey Weinstein ever directs a film, he'd like to produce it so that when the film gets made, he can cut 40 minutes out of it and see how he likes it. Um, <laughs> but he did The Departed, which is like $90 million. And, sh- you know, Shutter Island is another big one, 80. And, and, and Hugo was $150 million. That's a very, very, probably too expensive film. So since the turn of the 21st century, Scorsese has been able to make films on a much bigger scale. And that's the thing that kind of gave me doubts is to say that I'm not sure he would go back and do something like that um, Joker film on, you know, on on that sort of slightly more low key level, because ever since the 21st century, he's been trying to do bigger films. Gangs in New York recreates New York in the, the, the you know, he went, he went, he goes to Cinecitta in in Rome and, and, and recreates whole kind of city streets, city blocks. The Aviator, he recreated Howard Hughes's, um, you know, multiple kind of, you know, planes and, and big stately homes and, 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 and 40s, you know, uh, New York. And, and and in Hugo, he recreates like early 20th century Paris. He seems to be wanting to do things on a much bigger, grander scale, recreating a whole world, huge production design and stuff in his films. 
I, I just I don't if, if he was going to do a Joker film I don't think he'd have done it in the way that Todd Phillips eventually did not just because he wouldn't just end up you know you know paying tribute to his own work because I don't think he's that kind of guy but also because by the time this film's being made in the, in the 21st century he's making different kinds of films um, yeah no I agree I did have a thought though right <clears throat> if he was going to make well, what would you say if, if Scorsese had said I know what I can do with this. I'll get Leonardo DiCaprio to play the Joker because that's his guy. Yeah, that's a bit odd, isn't it? Um, maybe he'd get Joaquin Phoenix to play because I thought Joaquin Phoenix was a very good Joker. He was but, excellent, yeah. But I would have thought maybe Scorsese's interest in doing this is that he could recreate, he could create a whole new Gotham City because the Joker's more or less filmed on location in New York, isn't it? And is made to look yeah. like 70s, 80s New York. And maybe he would say, actually, I know what I could do. I could create a whole new Gotham City. I'll go to one of my favourite kind of, you know, studio backlots and create a, a Gotham City. And that would be the way he would do it. He'd be able to create a Gotham for kind of the Joker to kind of live in and, and, and operate in. And I wondered if maybe he could have done it in the, in the style of something like The Wolf of Wall Street or Goodfellas or Casino, where maybe he's he's got, it's a narrated story. It's kind of a big, pacey, um, sort of almost like, you know, exciting kind of, you know, shocking life of the Joker like narrated, and and, and what I was thinking about this, I thought you could have the Joker, you could have the the Joker narrating the story, or you could have the the Arthur character who turns into the Joker narrating the story, and like in Casino and Goodfellas, you can have a counter narration. You know how in Casino and Goodfellas you start getting counter narratives. It's like you get the opposite and one of the opposing characters narrating the story at the same time. You could have like a competing narrative between the Joker and the voices in his head. So you've got Arthur narrating and then the narration of the Joker, the crazy character he turns into, gradually taken over. And I wondered if that, if Scorsese was going to do it, I wonder if that would have been the way he would do the story. Do you know what I mean? Because that's more Seems like, very on the nose though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but is it any more on the nose than just doing a, a, a disguised remake of um, uh, of uh, King of Comedy? Do you know what I mean? Oh, this is true. It's completely, I just, that's what I'm saying. I genuinely don't know how we'd do this because I don't think Scorsese would just be like, oh, well, remember that time I used the narration in Goodfellas? Yeah. Now I'm going to do it for this Joker film. Do you know what I mean? I don't think he would do that. Yeah, and maybe that's why he didn't do it. Maybe there's just no way that, no way for Scorsese to make this film, you know, because that's just not his thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. He makes other types of films. And I know other people have gone into the comic book world and done interesting stuff. I guess in the end, he just... You know, he's just not that kind of guy, is he? Just he just doesn't make those kinds of films. Yeah. Like like the listener said in their message, it's kind of it's if you like Scorsese films and you like Marvel comic book films, it's probably better that they stay separate because then you get both. You get both kinds of movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say it worked better for his films to be the inspiration for the Joker than the person actually making it. I would still see it, but yeah, I get what you mean. Um, there's an interesting footnote to this um, because we're talking about the Scorsese films that didn't get made. There are other kind of actual kind of one that got away for Scorsese that we're going to do at some point in the future, like his version of the George Gershwin story, stuff like that. Um, have you heard of something called Goncharov? No. So this is an interesting little footnote to the Scorsese story. Um There's an article in The Guardian about it, which is really interesting. But basically, thousands of internet users have been making posters, soundtracks, drawings, and fan fiction for a 1973 Scorsese film starring Robert De Niro that never existed. 
Okay. It's just one of those things that happened on the internet. It's basically become a meme because people started talking about, oh, there's a, a little scene. They start saying this is a little scene, Martin Scorsese film called Goncharov. What's it all about? It's a, it's a Robert De Niro as a former discotheque owner who comes to Naples after the fall of the Soviet Union with the goal of becoming a mob boss. Harvey Keitel, Gene Hackman, Al Pacino. It's almost like people have fantasized about the ultimate Scorsese film. And then people just got really picked it up and ran with it and they started creating posters um, they, you know, started imagining what was in the story and everything else. And it almost took on a life of its own. There were like posters of the film, thousands of people sharing it. And it's almost become like a little kind of in-joke. It's like saying, oh, next year is the 50th anniversary of Goncharov. Have you seen it? It was on the Komodo Mayo show the other day. Um, they're kind of jokingly saying, oh, yeah, I haven't seen it in years, but it was really weird, especially when the spaceship turns up. Do you know what I mean? It becomes this kind of... It's become kind of a joke. meme, yeah. Yeah, and it's just... <clears throat> I guess, you know, we talked about Kubrick earlier in the pod is that you get this um, fandom builds up around directors and then the internet creates opportunities for people to, you know, there's like a, you know, there's a, they've created a cash-in video game, a soundtrack, you know, that, you know, there's fake reviews of it on Letterboxd and all this sort of thing. Um, the New York Times have had to remove multiple reviews for the film that had been submitted by users. It's one of these ones where people have picked it up and, and, and run with it. Um, yeah. Um, I just thought it's a funny footnote that, you know, the we've kind of conjured up a little bit of one that got away here with um, with Joker because Scorsese never actually got on a set and actually did any filming of this film. But um, people have really gone one step further with Gontrov and they've just invented a whole new Scorsese film which was never seen. But it's, it's worth having a dig in. Look up Scorsese Gontrov if you've ever got half an hour to waste um, on the internet. It's, uh, it's a funny read. We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic, but every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. This month we take a look at a film which is not a remake of a classic that should have been left alone, rather it's the latest in a series of failed attempts to make the same story which has never been done well. The remake Hate Watch for episode 32 is the 2015 version of Fantastic Four. Uh, just a note that we're also going to do a remake restoration here as well in the new feature that James suggested where after we've uh, you know d dispatched the, the bad remake we talk about a film that should have been remade um, uh, and, and made a lot better and uh, this is a film that came out in the year the same year as all the other films were featuring so it, it sticks to our our loose theme for this episode uh, so James what's your relationship to the Fantastic Four uh, for example did what did you think of the two films they did in the early 2000s that came out when you were a kid so I enjoyed them when I was a kid but watching them now they are crap but it, the Fantastic Four has always been like four cheesy, lame superheroes. Yeah, it doesn't really fit the kind of modern template of like and the, the, the superhero blockbuster, do they? Yeah, and the, the villain Doctor Doom's lame. He's always been lame. But it was fun. It was a comic book film. Um, and the Silver Surfer has always been a badass. And a, fuck knows why he's connected to the Fantastic Four, because they're shite. Um, but by the time the second one came out, I was 18 or 19 nearly. Yeah. And by the time I got around to watching it, I was probably in my twenties, and it was just rubbish. Yeah, it's I've just I didn't even get all the way through it. I just I saw the reviews, and that that's probably a mistake because that clouds your judgment of the film to begin with. But I went in with as like clear a judgment and like 
unbiased view of it as I could. And mm. it is just bad. It is just, it's a mess. I couldn't even tell you what happens, but it's wasted a really talented cast in uh, Miles Teller, Michael B. Jordan, um, Jamie Bell, Kate Mara. Like, that's a really talented cast. Yes, there. yes. And fuck knows what went wrong there. Well, I mean, we can we can go a little bit into what went wrong. I mean, essentially, this is the origin story of the Fantastic Four. Again, they, 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 Hollywood never shies away from doing another origin story. Um, there are some slightly different uh, sort of elements to the story, but we can go through that. But it, it kind of went wrong right from the beginning because, first of all, I just don't think a dark Fantastic Four story works, and I think you've got that problem that. One of the one of the sort of minority of DC films that's that's worked lately has been Shazam, which was unapologetically lighter and more kid friendly than some of these other superhero films, and I think that's the only way you make Fantastic Four work. I think you've just got to admit that it's it's a PG rated fun fun exciting kids film, or yeah. or more suitable for kids than 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 most of these films, and I, and I think if you don't like that, don't do it because it doesn't work any other way. Even if it, I'm not sure how well it works even that way. Um, the director that they hired to do this is a guy called Josh Trank. He had had a hit with a low-budget, small-scale, found-footage film about people who gain superhero powers called Chronicle. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, I've seen that. It's all right. Uh, it's all right. It works quite well for what it is, but it's a low-budget, small-scale film. Now, some people can make the jump from there to blockbusters, like Peter Jackson, who we'll discuss in, in Real 2, Christopher Nolan. He started out in much smaller films and then has, has moved on to, to much bigger films, including superhero films. Doug Lyman has gone on to, you know, did the Bourne trilogy after a bunch of indie films. Josh Trank, I don't think, is up to that, that task. Even so, they hired that director and a writer who went on the same page. They hired a writer who did a more traditional blockbuster version, version idea of like in the script, a much more traditional kind of like story. And then they hired a director after that writer who had an entirely different vision of the film. Josh Trank wanted to do something a bit more like a bigger version of what he'd done on Chronicle. So you've got a director and a writer who don't get on anyway, right? And they couldn't agree amongst themselves whether the film would you know be one or the other. They couldn't agree amongst the production team whether it would tie in with X-Men or not. They eventually choose Josh Trank, the director's vision, over the slate of the writer's vision to make it. And it might still have been shit, but we'll never know because they compromised even on that. Because once they've said to Josh Trank, okay, make the film your way, they then interfered. They stepped in and took the film away from him and reshot it because they didn't like what he was doing. So they, 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 they just got it wrong in about eight different ways, right? It's also worth mentioning that the producer of the film has to take some blame over this. We talked about him in the last episode, Akiva Goldsman. Do you remember how we talked about he did quite well with um, uh, A Beautiful Mind and then went into genre films and, and, and doesn't seem to do a good job of any of them? Because he's the yeah. guy responsible for iRobot, Batman and Robin, I Am Legend and The Dark Tower. He keeps compromising like good genre films. He's responsible for this as well. He was the producer, so a lot of decisions are on him. Um, and then when they're casting the film, right, I think Michael B. Jordan is a really good actor, but I don't know what you thought about this. Um if you say we're going to make Johnny Storm black, I'm absolutely fine with that. I don't think it's particularly kind of, uh, you know, big change to make him a black character. Make him black, that's fine. And especially if you're going to cast Michael B. Jordan, because he's really good, right? So why did they make his sister white? Did they not explain that? They sort of explained it very briefly. But you know why his sister is white? Why? Because the studio said to the director, you can have a black Johnny Storm 
but you can't have a black uh, invisible girl. That's too many black people in the in in, in the Fantastic Four. Jesus Christ! So he said, "What the fuck are we going to do? We've got Michael Jordan Black. How is his sister white?" And they said, "I'll make her adopted." Make her adopted. Yeah. So she's adopted, and it's like, and and here's, here's the thing, right? If you're going to have a character in a film is adopted, that's fine. Superhero films are often about kind of finding your own adopted family anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, misfits and that. Yeah, but for it just to be a plot point just kind of shows that they don't really know what the fuck they're doing. Do you know what I mean? And they don't do anything. In, they don't do anything in the story to kind of explore the relationship between uh, Michael B. Jordan's character and his adopted sister. They just kind of go, "Oh yeah, she's adopted. Can we get on with the story now?" It's like fucking hell. Do you know what I mean? So before you've even started, they made a bunch of bad decisions. So it's nothing, it's no surprise that the rest of it goes obviously wrong. I mean, the, the other thing about this, this film is is um, an hour and 40 minutes, right? So it's been cut to bits, right? And for about an hour, nothing happens. So for a, a film that's already quite short anyway, they spend an hour talking about, it's like, um, you know, the, the, troubles, the troubles of two teenagers, one of whom wants to be a scientist. It's like, when is this going to become a superhero film? And the answer is <laughs> 15 minutes before the end. You know, you've got Victor Von Doom, who might as well have, obviously, will turn out to be the villain tattooed on his head. <laughs> ben Grimm just disappears off for a bit and then is randomly brought back in. This, I mean, God knows what they were trying to do, but there's so... And then the, the, the origin story depends on an un, uh, unsanctioned mission. Again, you see that in movies. But they get drunk and like and, and zoom off to a different planet. It's like, really? And it's just like, there's no chemistry between the group. Nothing happens for an hour and 20 minutes of an hour and 40 minute film. But apparently they have time at the end for a three minute conversation about deciding to call themselves a Fantastic Four. The special effects are crap. They... They have what, what, another kind of dark planet where they go and where the CGI looks really murky. The whole thing is just, it, it's an object lesson in how not to make a good film. It's not even about not making a good remake because the, the previous films weren't very good. So if you're going to remake this and do it do it well, fine. But every every decision I made about this was wrong. You know, they 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 turned the superheroes into super soldiers for the organization. They have Michael B. Jordan as a street racer to show what a rebel he is. There is nothing original or good about this film at all. It's just a perfect example of getting it wrong in every single respect every single choice they made on this movie was the wrong choice well i didn't even bother watching the i think i got to the bit where they they go to that random planet and i thought no fuck this and turned it off i just there's, couldn't be asked there's hardly anything else happens in the rest of the film jeez oh man they, they become the fantastic four and fight victor von doom and use their powers in literally the last 20 minutes of the film that's and do you know what it is? The problem is that I understand why the studios go back to the whole origin story again and again and again mm -hmm. and again, but it would be nice to just have a Fantastic Four film where they're already the Fantastic Four. Like that, while Doctor Strange Two Strange Harder was fucking guff, um, it was nice to just oh Reed Richards is in there and he's played by um what's his name John Krasinski. Yeah. Oh, spoiler alert! After the fact, um, <laughs> don't care film shit. Um, and it wasn't like, oh, this is Reed Richards, and he's from the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four are four misfits who end up having all these superpowers if they're exposed to a solar flare. You know what I mean? It was just, he's there. And it did the same, but Captain America was, um, Cap Captain America was Peggy Carter, and it was like Captain Britain. And then Captain Marvel was a black woman, and then there was another guy with a mad voice thing. Yeah. And it wasn't, there wasn't any exposition to it. It was just like, this is what these characters do. And, and this is what they're going to do. Even if you are going to do an origin story, you are allowed to to have them start being the superhero much, much fucking earlier in the film. I mean, you, you know, 
Christopher Nolan told a lot of the origin story for Batman in flashbacks. Do you know what I mean? It's like, let him be Batman sooner rather than later, because that's what people have come to see, you know? Um, but yeah, it's just a perfect example of how not to do it. So, totally. I mean, that, that's that. I don't think anyone's surprised that we didn't like that. But shall we use the rest of the running time of this uh, of this feature to do our remake restoration, where we propose a remake of a film that would make it better? Now, this was yes. my suggestion. Another film that came out in the year you turned 18, or, you know between the date you turned 18 and before you turned 19, was uh, Michael Fassbender's Macbeth. So the Macbeth that had Michael Fassbender as a title character. Um, now, I watched this for this feature. I hadn't seen it before because a lot of the reviews had been quite... Although there have been good reviews, I remember you saying how shit it was. And I, I, didn't, it, I wasn't that enthused. But I watched it for this feature and I completely agree with you that it wasn't very good. But yeah. why don't you think it's very good, the, the original? So, well, probably a couple of reasons. So, at the time, I'd slipped a disc in my back and I was going through cryonic, uh, cryonic, chronic sciatic pain and I was probably already irritable as it was. Mm-hmm. Two, it was shit. Um, <laughs> the the runtime of the film was an hour and 50. Yeah. Now, take 10 minutes off for the credits. It's an hour and 40. And Macbeth is like two and a half hours. Macbeth is like five acts. Yeah. So... Yeah, I went to see it with my mum, and Macbeth's her favourite um, Shakespeare play, I think. Well, it's definitely mine. Yeah. And um, she, th- what she didn't like was the fact that they got rid of, you know, some of like the key speeches. Mm-hmm. And one of those key speeches is Lady Macbeth's speech at the end, which really kind of crowns off her character. Like, it really kind of... Yeah. It's like, that's her character, and that kind of summarises like, what she was at the start to what she is now. Um, and they just got rid of it, and it's, it doesn't make sense for Lady Macbeth to not have that speech in the in the film. Yeah. Now I thought the casting was fucking brilliant. Michael Fassbender, Marion Cotillard, that cunt from Mission Impossible who always plays the baddie, Sean, Sean Harris. Sean Harris, yeah, I really like him. Um, can't remember who else is in it. It's Paddy Constein in it. Yes. He plays Banquo. So the cast is fucking you know dynamite. And I remember seeing that it got a seven, 75 minute standing ovation at the Pam door, and yeah. Justin Curzel got a hand job from film, someone yeah, after the every fucking film yeah. gets a standing ovation at Cannes. I wouldn't read anything into that. Yeah, I mean, what was it? Um, that, that, honestly, it's it's worth mentioning the other members of the cast because of how good it is. It's like uh, Paddy Considine's in it, Elizabeth Debicki's in it. She's very good. David Thewlis is in it. David Heyman, who you've seen in a bunch of things. Morris Reeves, who you've seen in a bunch of things. The James Harkness, who I've seen in, in a bunch of TV dramas, is, is really good as well. So, like you say, great cast. It's one of Shakespeare's best plays. Probably my favourite as well, actually. I know everyone talks about Lear and Hamlet, but I think Macbeth is brilliant. It's the best. Like. What what I would I mean, what I would say is probably no one has got Macbeth exactly right in a film. Not even uh, Pedro Polanski. I think that while that's good, I still don't think it completely gets Macbeth across. If you ask me, I mean, I don't know if you disagree. I don't think anyone's quite done the definitive Macbeth. Um, if you were to take the visuals of. Justin Curzel's Macbeth and apply it to Roman Polanski's Macbeth. I think you actually have a decent... Would, would be getting a decent stab at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing for me is, I think the, the underlying theme of the story is is, is brilliant. And, you know, you know, obviously, um, Throne of Blood, the Kurosawa version, is, I think, an amazing film, but it's not a straight Shakespeare adaptation. He takes the storyline and makes a samurai film out of it, so exclude that. The under, But to do Macbeth, I think, you, you know, you've, you've got to get that underlying theme right. It's like, 
The theme of the story is not just how people can be distorted by ambition. It's about how if you seize power like a tyrant, then you'll most likely become a tyrant, whatever you were like before. And that tells you something about Macbeth's arc. You've got to get that arc right. Um, but in, in this, they seem to... They seem to I'll tell you my problem with this film is that it's very flat almost all the way through. The opening scene with the witches is like, it's just a bunch of women in a field talking to each other. You know, it, it's, you know, you, you don't necessarily want them to be traditional evil witches, right? I don't think, you know, I don't want them to camp it up. But it needs to be, if, you, if you're going to do the story with the witches, there's got, it's got to be eerie and supernatural and it just isn't, right? Yeah. You know, the fact is they see what Macbeth will do and they see that it is inevitable. And this is a dramatic device to say that it, you can't escape your destiny you can't escape your nature do you know what i mean um you can see that as like a magical kind of vision of the future or you can see that you know that it's a comment on human nature but it's got to be cinematic and haunting and so many of these things are not cinematic um i thought the opening battle scene was a bit meh um i thought they should all all the people involved in the film should take a look at the way ridley scott does battle scenes from ancient to modern and see how he edits them because the editing was poor in this i didn't think they Actually, I don't think they portrayed the, the the scale of the battle side of the countryside very well. It was all a bit kind of static. The, too much of it is two blokes standing around, which if you're going to do that, you've got to do it and shoot it like like Borman's Excalibur and make them look big on screen. I don't yeah. think those shots got them properly. Um, I also think, I think people underestimate how hard Macbeth is. Everyone talks about Hamlet and Lear being like the difficult plays to do well, but I think Macbeth is as complex and as hard as that. The main characters need the right balance. So your comment from your mum about leaving out a really important speech by Lady Macbeth is a classic example. If you don't cover the characters properly, they won't come across properly. Um, it's part historical drama, it's part war film, but it's also part character study, you know? I don't think they're doing the dialogue very well. I think it needed someone like Branner to get the dialogue right. Yeah. Um, you've got, and here's the other thing, you've got people who aren't Scottish trying to do a Scottish accent. It's and, horrendous, and they're putting so much effort into that there isn't much left over for the rest of their performance and there are characters who um, uh, are Scottish but I don't think I think I don't think they're particularly familiar with Shakespearean dialogue and Justin Kersel is Australian no disrespect but you need someone who's absolutely sheep dipped in in Shakespearean theatre to actually show people how to how to say the dialogue because a lot of time this sounded like kids reading it out in, in English class at school. Mm. So it never came to life. It just died on screen. And they never quite they never quite worked out whether they should do the big speeches as kind of a voiceover of what they're saying in their heads or whether it's like a monologue and anything else. And yeah. it just, you know, you've got to establish the setting. Is it classic cattle and battlefields? Is it armor? Is it kilts? You know, you never see the physical layout of, of where they live, who's highborn and who's low. You know, but basically, I think I think there's a couple of choices. You either need to commit to like an impressionistic, atmospheric, eerie version of the story, like the way David Lowery did with The Green Knight. Although I don't necessarily think exactly what he did with The Green Knight would be right for this. It was right for that story, but not this one. But it's got to be more atmospheric. You've got to decide whether you're going to have visions of the dagger and the ghost of the dead haunting him, or whether you're making him hallucinate. And I also, you also need to remember that it's a film. You can use montage. Or, or you make it more of like an all-out kind of gripping, historical, kind of epic kind of story about a murderous tyrant and the opposition gathering against him. In the end, I didn't think the, 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 the final battle scene was all that exciting. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I mean, w w what would you do to make this better? How, how would you have liked to see Kurzel make it? Is it as simple as 
the way the way the characters perform in um uh in uh in Macbeth but with a better kind of visual palette I think it's everything you've just said but don't keep the entire original script in mm-hmm. keep the entire original Shakespeare script in don't get English and English people to do Scottish accents unless they can definitely do a Scottish accent because I yeah. am fucking sick to death of folk doing Scottish accents that just they just don't sound right. They don't sound like they come from anywhere in Scotland. Yeah. You know, if you were to get a fucking Aberdonian in front of me, I'd be able to tell you that he's an Aberdonian. But whenever you get an English cunt doing a Scottish accent, they just sound like a fucking bell end. Yeah. They sound like a fucking cunt trying to make a joke at a wedding. Um and yeah. it's just fucking it's shite. They all like it's it's horrible that the outside of a Scottish person doing a Scottish accent, the only thing that sounds remotely close to Scotland is fucking Shrek. Well, that's the thing. Because... Can, the thing is, you don't need them necessarily to be Scottish accents because medieval noblemen maybe wouldn't have spoken with a Scottish accent because there is that thing that, like, like the, the really posh Scottish people sound English. Do you know what I mean? Nowadays, you know, what's that name? That, that ginger woman who played Jon Snow's girlfriend in... Um, uh, Rose in, Leslie. Yeah, she's Scottish, apparently. No, but she doesn't. No, but yeah, she's Scottish, but she just she's so posh, she grew up in literally in a castle. She's like Scottish aristocracy, so she sounds English. So you don't have to have them all having Scottish accents. Yeah, but what school but it, did she go to? Did she go to like a private school or did she go to a comprehensive? Well, she definitely didn't go to a comprehensive. Uh, well, there you go. She's but, not Scottish. But but that, that's the thing, right? If you are, like you say, if you are going to have characters with Scottish accents, they've either got to be Scottish or be able to do it. I, don't, I didn't have a problem with Fassbender's accent, but a lot of, you could see a lot of these actors were struggling with a Scottish accent. Probably Marion Cotillard didn't try to do a Scottish accent as well, so she probably came out the best in that sense. Well, no, actually, Marion Cotillard's casting is the only fucking accurate thing about the well, the historical time frame of the film because every fucking Scottish cunt was marrying a French cunt back yeah. in those days. Yeah. That was that. So every queen that Scotland had yeah, for like two hundred years, yeah. about eight eight out of ten of them would have been um, French. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that that all made sense. But I mean, for me, it's got it's got to be atmosphere. I I, I think you've got to make it really gothic. The whole thing about Macbeth is that this guy, right, he was prepared to fucking murder his best friend for power. And he he kind of found that out about himself in the course of this film because for a long time he was a loyal kind of just general fighting for a cause. And then someone plants the seed in his head that you could be king. And it plants the seed in the head of his wife. And the two of them become this kind of, it's a folly adieu. These two people become so overcome with ambition, they're prepared to fucking murder their way to absolute power over a country, and they become tyrants. Yeah. You know, that's fucking gripping. Do you know what I mean? That's fucking Idi Amin, you know? That's that's like a, a dictatorship taking over. That's kind of, people have been transformed and distorted into grotesque people by, 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 um, by naked, greedy, violent ambition. And then afterwards, they're haunted by the ghosts of the people that they've murdered. And the way in which they become tyrants means the whole, the whole, the whole like land comes alive. There's such a famous end to Macbeth is that the, the, the prophecy is that the forest will come alive and come at you. The and, forest of Burnham Wood will come to High Dunsinane. Yeah, and, and what happens is they use the trees as kind of cover for the battle. But you've got to film that. You've got to film that so that it looks like the fucking forest has come alive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I just think there's too much standing around and I think reciting the lines in really generic medieval settings instead of really fucking bringing it to life. You've really got to kind of, you know, my hands are like gripping into fists here when I'm talking about this because that's what Macbeth is. It's like Macbeth is this, 
he tur- it's it's a tragedy because he's meant to be the hero and he turns into a fucking terrible person because of greed and ambition. And you've got to get that across, you know? I know it's not historically accurate. Macbeth wasn't like that. He was fighting for the throne like everyone else was and they all had a shot and he, he, he fucking took over and he, he won, uh, someone else lost, tough shit. You could tell that version of the story, but if you're going to do Shakespeare's version, it's got to be this gothic, ghostly, atmospheric, you know, uh, fever dream of a film, you know? And it's really got to kick your ass, you know? And I just think that the wrong director and a, and, and, and a flat handling and, and, and too many wrong choices but made it not good. But I still hold out hope that one of these days someone's going to do a great Macbeth. It just wasn't this one. Yeah. I mean, how gothic are we talking? Are we talking like Batman gothic? Like, no. fur is foul and foul is fur. No, no, no. But just, <laughs> just the fact that I, I think if someone is hallucinating the ghosts of the people that they've murdered and having visions of daggers and having witches prophesy their um their violent taking of the throne and then their downfall you've got to make that you've got to make it ghostly you've got to make it like you know you've got to you, you, that, 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 you've got to make it that kind of just much more feverish than it was you know i think just get browner to direct it and, and cast scottish actors as scottish characters it'll take you a long way yeah I, i'm surprised browner's never had a go at it to be honest He's probably played too busy, on the stage. Too busy doing those fucking shitty Poirot films. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's it. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now. We hope you will join us again soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation, which explores the Lord of the Rings franchise from its Oscar-winning original trilogy through The Hobbit to the Rings of Power TV series. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. The podcast is edited in Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side.